Christmas everywhere Let heavenly music fill the air Let every heart sing Gotcha, bitch! We all know Santa kills an elf every time a Christmas song is played before Thanksgiving. And you guys with your lights on? Come on. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in. This is episode 13 of Justified Pursuit. Cable Smith here along with Chisholm Cook, as always. And we've got a good one for you today. This is the, well, I don't know if you guys are highly anticipating it, but Chisholm and I both have been uh, looking forward to reviewing the Orwell Classic 1984. Chisholm, how in the hell are you today? Um, I'm looking forward to being done with this because it puts me in a dark place. Not that, <laughs> not that the news doesn't do the same. And once you've read right. this book two or three times, like I have now, you kind of see it everywhere. <laughs> I thought you were in a dark place because you were out of town and you hadn't been able to, uh, have sex with your wife for a few days. Isn't that what you told me off the air? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like um, a week. I think it was a week, actually. That would put me in a dark place, too, uh, for the, sure. The sad part is that uh, my, my trip, my travels took me to Northern California. Blah. Uh, oh. Well, no, yeah, see, that, that, that's what you would that's what you would think. Well, that's because California is just a dirty, dirty word. No, I know, but there are so many more folks like us there than anybody realizes. I, I'm just convinced that... Much like California and New York make up the difference in America, mm-hmm. L.A. and San Francisco make up the difference in California. You don't have to go very far outside of San Francisco to find regular Americans who yeah. are not pumped about homeless people everywhere and not pumped about you know the California Teachers Association ruling, um, uh, base, running the Ministry of Truth. Right, right. <laughs> Bring it back to this. Yeah. Um, I did go to California last year for my wife's uh, cousin's wedding, and we went to Monterrey, and it was beautiful. I, I you know, if it wasn't right, if it wasn't in California, I would have thought, wow, this is a pretty, pretty cool place. Um, with the beach and the redwoods and uh, all that stuff, right there in that area. Um, and I'd never seen the redwoods. That was one of the coolest things that that I've ever seen. And to take my kids there was pretty awesome too. Yeah, they're amazing. Which uh, which redwood forest or park? Uh, this did you was go a to? smaller one. Um, wasn't the redwood forest? It was uh, I don't know about an hour up the coast from from Monterey. Uh, I can't remember the name of the the national park, but it was it wasn't huge, but the trees were. Yeah, and uh, one you could like walk inside, and they said that some general lived in that tree for I don't know an extended period of time. Had windows cut into it. Everything was awesome. That's cool. I've yeah. been to the Mirror Woods, mm-hmm. uh, named after a great conservationist, John Muir. And that was definitely one of the most impressive and spiritual places I'd ever been. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's pretty incredible to, to see trees that are in the hundreds of feet tall and thousands and they, of years old. And they're so deceptive looking. They just look like giant pine trees, right? 
mm-hmm. if you're if you're 100 yards back from it then you go walk up to it and you realize you can stick your arms straight out and and then like press up against it and your arms don't bend around the trunk they're still just straight out yeah <laughs> because it's it's like a flat wall you're up against yeah. the curve is so gradual <clears throat> yeah one of god's true beauties for sure um well some things in the news some quick quick hits here before we get into the book uh you saw florida governor uh ron DeSantis, uh the stand your ground law that he's trying to get passed and the subsequent backlash from the left so basically it's to prevent rioting and looting in mass numbers and giving property and and business owners the right to defend what is theirs and and that includes using deadly force if necessary which i'm all for that's your stuff you have the right to protect it that's your livelihood uh and especially with these potential lock lockdowns shutdowns that might be coming with biden um you know i think every business that puts food on the table is an essential business um but the left dude they got a hold of this and they turned it into this race thing saying oh DeSantis is giving white people the right to shoot black people you imagine and my my friend told me this the other day he saw a tweet he was like can you imagine being so racist that you think only black people are are looting and rioting or being so racist that only white people own businesses and want to protect their shit (laughs) right Uh. (laughs) who is the racist ones good lord yeah we know the answer to that yeah Um, yeah. it's funny that's that's a very uh it's very timely on a number of fronts um our review of this book which Mm -hmm. uh you know socialism slash communism is kind of all about property ownership or the 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 lack thereof and you know it's the fundamental it's funny you know because the first thing i thought when you you know described how the media reacted to it was um so they're basically acknowledging that their protest movement is i it's at least it's it's at least as much about the property ownership issue and the concept of property ownership which is the communist angle right the marxist part as it is about racial equality right like they've been saying that all summer and we've talked about it here they don't believe you should have the right to defend property they don't believe you should own property to begin with Mm -hmm. um so you know it's not surprising that they would blow a gasket and flip out about it and it's also not surprising that their rationale would be ridiculous and atrocious and conflicting on its face uh <laughs> they yeah. uh they take the concept of double think um to levels i think even beyond what orwell had envisioned. imagine yeah yeah, yeah. well in, in the irony also is that they're claiming that he's allowing violence but if it was a truly peaceful protest then why would wouldn't be necessary reaction right. yeah, be be uh necessary well it's not because it's because they're not peaceful protests burning people's shit to the ground looting stealing their property isn't peaceful that's violent so you know violence incites violence that's the way it goes and it should be and you should have the right to violently if necessary i mean last case scenario but you know last resort hey i don't have a problem with it at all um, and maybe, just maybe, 
people will take notice and be like, oh, maybe I'm not going to go steal shit today because I could get shot for it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we, we don't see a whole lot of that here. No, we don't. At home in Texas. Uh, we had protests in every major city in, major city in the state uh, back in May and June. And, um, you know, I think basically scattered throughout the throughout the summer um but the looting rioting stuff was kind of kept to a bare minimum yeah from what i can you know at least in comparison it seems to uh many of the other states in the country and i think we've said it before but i think that's because an armed society like ours is a polite society yep we as we've said all along supported the protests themselves protests in general um the rationale at least initial, you know, alleged rationale for the protests. Um, and I think our state upheld that as a whole. When you saw, you know, police officers in Houston marching with the protesters in uh, demonstration against what happened to George Floyd, right? And right. like here in San Antonio, I know our pastor with something like 25 or 30 other faith leaders across the greater San Antonio area met with BLM demonstrators uh, like, a week or two after George Floyd downtown talked with them, like marched with them. They had, they prayed with them. Like it was was a beautiful thing, you know? And then Mm -hmm. much later that evening, then some, some uh, nonsense broke out, but anyway. Yeah. Well, as far as 1984, let's go there now. Um, Orwell, George Orwell is um, he's English was English. And we talked about this just briefly last week, had a, you know, a vision of socialism. I don't, it wasn't what we're seeing in the world today. I don't think like in, you know, Venezuela, social, uh, you know, obviously China. um, And I don't know what his vision, maybe it was more like Sweden, like, um, you know, kind of a, what do they call it? Democratic socialism. Yeah. I mean, same thing, Bernie and, AOC try to call it, but well, yeah, but it's not as hardcore as what I don't know. I I think his vision wasn't just 100 percent true well, socialism, but it was ironic because he's writing this book on the heels of World War II when uh, fascism and, and socialism were defeated by you know you know when the the uh, Axis powers went down. So it's odd to see that coming from someone who lived in that war torn environment in europe uh i i just i find it fascinating that this is what came out of his pen after living through that well i think it's in part because he saw it you know in first person in in real time right Mm -hmm. yeah you're right i think he was an idealist right he he had this belief shared i mean you've universally at this point among the left that the that capital, the capitalist structure, capitalism, capitalists themselves, you know, just created this unsustainable oppression hierarchy based on wealth, right, or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, uh, everybody wants to see everybody doing better, right? Sure. I, I mean, like I mentioned, I just came back from Cal- California, and I don't look at the people living under those bridges with disdain and uh, complete lack of empathy. Um, feel sorry for those people and, sure. and and wish that there was more we could do to help of course part of the problem there is that 
they're perfectly happy where they're at, you know, and that's evidenced by cities like Austin that build a, you know, multi tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollar, you know, shelter. Uh, and they say, we're not going to use it because it's too far from the street corners. We like to hang out. We'll just camp there. Right. <laughs> right. So it's like, but there's free <clears throat> hot, there's hot food and beds over there. Right. They don't care. So, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, I don't, I, I think there's, it's clear there's a, a mental illness component to that. Right. But my, my point is just that we, we all would like to see people having better outcomes. Right. Sure. I think that, you know, to your point, he, George Orwell, he went to Spain to try to fight back, uh, I guess, a, Italian fascists that were coming in and trying to like, uh, you know, kind of nationalize under fascism Spain. And they were being contested and combated by Soviets. And that's who he was on the side of. But then he was able to watch what was happening in the Soviet Union when those ideals were taken to their extreme and logic, you know, extreme logical conclusions. And so that's, I think I mentioned on one of these calls, but I found some articles where he sort of spoke to some of that. Like, yeah, I'm a socialist. He's a socialist, but he was a realist too, right? And he saw at the end of the day, just like an animal farm, right? At the end of the day, he kind of realizes that any of these systems are still run by people. And at the end of the day, people are no really different than pigs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and whatever the high-minded ideals of the folks in power may be, um, they're not willing to give up that power in the name of those ideals. Right. And in furtherance of those ideals, they'll do anything to push the ideals while also maintaining the power. So that's why, I, like I said before, like I think it's awesome that George Orwell himself considered himself a socialist and yet wrote both of these books and showed what happens when you go that route. Like it's, it's a warning. Uh, He's like, if you take it too far, but yeah, I think the term which you use to label him idealist is, is spot on. Right. Um, so, well, so he lived through it, saw it firsthand. He ends up dying at age 46 of tuberculosis. He, he literally wrote this book while he was dying. I mean, the last two years of his life, he was very, very sick, and that's when he wrote this. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't necessarily make that connection, although the timeline certainly works out. I, um, maybe that helps <laughs> explain at least part of why it was so dark. And I mean, it's a it's a dark, heavy read, right? right. I mean, but it, necessary. It, and I think I might have done sure. the uh, the Cliff Cliff Notes version when I was in high school because I certainly didn't remember a lot of this stuff or. Maybe at, you know, as a 17 year old testosterone fuel, you know, fueled, uh, testosterone fueled athlete, uh, that I really just didn't care or absorb it. I don't know. Probably just did enough to get a 70 on a test and move on with my life. Man, I really don't think, unless you had a really awesome teacher that, um, forced like a real discussion and dialogue on a daily basis and really vetted out some of these ideas and, and did like what we're about to do, which is like sort of apply them to what we see around us. I just don't see how a 17 year old kid could ever take any real meaning from this book. Why and did he make us read it then? Well, I don't, I, I didn't have to, I, I remember reading animal farm. Uh -huh. um, that was definitely assigned. I want to say like when I was a freshman um, and you know, it's more or less the same story I guess it's different. Animal Farm is about the com, you know, about a socialist revolution 
right? Mm -hmm. And then the like immediate aftermath. And and this book is more like what happens 20, 30 years down the road from that, right? And of course, Animal Farm was walking, talking animals or talking animals. Um, and this is much more realistic, at least in that it's not a, a, a sort of fanciful setting of talking animals. But anyway, my point is I, I, I didn't have to read this book. And if I did get assigned it, I didn't actually read it. Right. Um, I read it for the first time, at least knowingly read it for the first time, I guess like two years ago. And then obviously reread re it now. But even if I had read it, to your point, um, and I've gotten some feedback since we first recommended this book on our first uh, couple of episodes. Um, one guy in particular I went to law school with, who's real smart, you know, very knowledgeable. Same, he said the same thing. He's like, man, I read that book 20 years ago and didn't think a damn thing of it. And he's like, right. I cracked it back open after you said to start reading it and my jaw hit the floor. Dude, I've got six notes from the first page. The first page. Yeah. Well, let's let's go there. But for, first, I want to ask you this. What do you think Orwell would say about being woke? Do you think he was woke? What do you think? What do you I, think about that? I think I, I I don't I think that I think he would say that's I, that that's exactly what he was getting at. I think he would say that woke culture uh, is by definition um problematic yeah it, it's exactly the kind of uh m sort of mind control and behavior control technique that he did he details throughout this book yeah. um you know that was my first thing it was on yeah. the cover it was like was orwell woke so yeah i think he would definitely describe himself as um liberal in the, um, I don't necessarily want to say the classical sense, uh, in the sense that, you know, very concerned about fairness and equality, et cetera. Right. Um, right. but I don't think he was, it doesn't seem to me that he was the kind of person that was willing or ready to, uh, lie about the nature of reality to get there. And to me, that's what, that's what the woke do. Right. Unwoke t-shirts coming soon, by the way, yeah. uh, justifiedpursuit.com. We will get those up and running. And sooner the better. I mean, now's the time to 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 wear, to to support the fact that, you know, I mean, I'm not woke. I'm going to wear that thing proudly, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's make a plan to make that happen. Yeah. Um, so the first thing that stood out to me and uh, and – your wife actually picked this book up and started to read it. I think when you were out of town one time and you came home and this was, I think before I'd even started, you know, started to dive into it. And she said, I had to put it down. It was too, it was too much. It was too dark too soon. And it's with the, the yeah, fact it, that you can't turn off the telescreen. Right. Like, right. And, t and then she's looking at her phone thing. And this is exactly that. I, I'm addicted to this phone. I can't turn it off. Is are they watching? You've already talked about in previous episodes how you'll, you know, say something or look something up, and the next thing you know, on a different device, whether that's your laptop or your your phone, there's an ad for that thing, and and sometimes it's like, wait, I didn't even look that up. I just said it out loud. So no, man. happened to me yesterday. 
I looked up something on my laptop and then 10 minutes later got on my phone to check Instagram. And I mean, the first ad was the thing. Right. Uh, Big I, brother. I, I still don't understand how that happens. <laughs> like, I, mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. But right. No, I mean, she, she had, especially to, since you don't even have a Google account anymore. So, right. I know that's the thing is I don't, none of these things tie together. I don't have a Facebook account. Um, yeah. I don't have a Google account. I have an Instagram account uh the yahoo account that i've put out there you know work email account um I, I don't i don't understand how all those things can link together like that i kind of get it if i say it out loud i think you know i think we're all coming to grips with the fact that these phones are listening to us even when they're not supposedly on mm -hmm. anyway back to your point yeah ash ash bailed uh, man like 10 or 12 pages in because <laughs> it just hit way too hard too close to home um, the stuff, like I said, I mean, the first page I've got six specific notes to, to touch on, you know, that are Go just for big picture concepts. Well, yeah, I mean, so in the very first page, I, well, I guess, first of all, kind of globally, the, the book kind of breaks down into two main acts from what I can, uh, I guess like three, the first is really, you know, say the first hundred pages is like scene setting, right? Mm -hmm. He does a great job of explaining what this dystopian future looks like, right? And it's called 1984 because the whole thing's set in the year, well, <laughs> the protagonist, a guy named Winston Smith, believes it's 1984. He doesn't know for sure because of the way they screw with history and, and screw with information, you know, kind of got lost, but it's somewhere Which around. Which is, interestingly enough, his job. Right, the, exactly. What is it? It's the Ministry of Truth. Ministry of at? Truth. That's right. And yeah. he's there and he's basically altering history as his daily job, right. taking newspaper articles, rewriting them, uh, throwing photographic evidence of events that happened in the trash, essentially, into like an incinerator. And they re and they rewrite some of his history as often as like yearly. Like it's insane. Right. Or even you know, days later or, or whatever. I mean, it, skipping all the way to the end of the book, they, they, the, the, the world breaks down into three world superpowers at this, at this time, right. That are always constantly at war and who's at war with who and who's allied with who is always can can just switch. And they all just pretend like it was always that way. Right. And so there's this point way late in the book where just out of nowhere, they, his country superpower, nation is suddenly at war with the other you know they're at war with one party and an allied with the other and then in a snap of a finger it's the opposite they're now at war with the former ally and allied with the former adversary and so he has to spend the next week working it says he works like nine hours nine ninety hours in four or five days or whatever to then go back and change like 15 years worth of history news clippings whatever to make which he'd already altered story lineup <laughs> yeah right it's he's altering his alterations it's insanity but, but, uh, but so going back he, to the first page yeah, yeah so so in the very first thing he mentions is how the power to his flat which of course you know so he's a member of the quote party the ruling class of oceana is the name of basically like england and the americas right uh he explains you know in the flat that's basically provided to him by the government they shut the power off promptly at 11 30 every night to conserve power and um you know have some propaganda about how that's 
uh, everybody kind of doing their duty. It made me immediately, I mean, this is like the first couple paragraphs of the book. It made me immediately think. Green New Deal? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was my second thought. My first thought was more just, you know, what's happened in California this summer and what happens every summer out there with these rolling blackouts. And man, I've learned some more. Like, it's not even, I don't remember what state I heard about the other day, but, you know, there are, it's, it's a routine thing in California every summer that you have these, uh, they actually call them brownout periods, right? Where sets of the city, subsets, like certain districts within a city will lose their power, say from noon to 3 p.m. to conserve. Um, they call them brownouts because it's not the entire city because anybody with money gets to keep the power on. It's poor community. Right. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff in this book. Yeah. Um, but just the point being, there were billboards up in LA. I remember hearing about over the summertime and tweets coming out from Mayor Eric Garcetti, the mayor in LA, about how um, power is being shut off. Turn your, you know, save your batteries, turn your stuff off. Da, 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 da. You're all doing your part, right? There's always this like communal propaganda bullshit that comes with it. So what I saw in New Mexico pertaining to coronavirus, right. you know, yeah. billboards up and down the highway. But so he, he throws out there the concept of big brother. Big brother is the, um, the official boss of the quote party in charge of everything. He's the, he's kind of like the God of these, of this, you know, atheist secular world, right? They all look to big brother for their guidance, mm-hmm. for uh, the leadership, for who to be mad at. But big brother is always watching. Right. And when you mentioned God, it's funny because they destroyed all of the all, artifacts right. and religion were just poof destroyed. Just like the, the Soviets revolution. did. Yeah. Yep. Just like the Soviets did. Just like the Maoists did. That's what they do. You can't have a God. The party and the principles and the whacked out ideas have to be your God. Because mm-hmm. if you have some higher authority, then they, then they don't have the authority that they have to have. Right. But right. anyway, he brings up the concept of the thought police and it's actually a police force that will come, you know, uh, arrest you in the middle of the night, take you away, torture you and ultimately kill you for, as he says, just behaving, just, just appearing as though you're holding thoughts that are contrary to the party orthodoxy, which immediately brings to mind what Twitter's doing, what Facebook's doing, what the Patriot Act did. Uh, man, there's this quote I'll get to later where he, you know, he, he basically talks about how, but, but basically the idea that, that this security that they are always offering, you know, basically ends up basically requiring or sort of forcing people to accept this tremendous intrusion into their privacy. Again, I go back to 9-11. That was justification for the Patriot Act. They've been monitoring our cell phones, our emails, all of our electronic communications, phone calls ever since, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's actually, that system that was delivered through the Patriot Act is what led to Russiagate, right? And the FISA process that got President Trump, um, surveyed and some of the people in his campaign surveilled by the intelligence agencies right did you know this is the the screens listening go ahead i was just going to say um because of that patriot act did you know that the 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 child um trafficking trafficking basically underground network they use shared email accounts and they type in the email but they don't ever send it and so that's how they communicate and they and they they, they have just, you know like multiple have a, people have a login to this email, they type huh. it and they just save it as a draft, 
and then they never send it. And so there's no, there's no way to trace it. Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you hear that? Yeah, I had never heard anything like that. Uh, gosh, I read it somewhere. Um, uh, but that makes sense. Like, how else would they communicate? You can't do it on a cell phone. You can't do it through text. So there you go. Makes complete sense. Yeah. Anyway. I guess it's the first three pages that these six or so notes I made come to be. But fourth I had was this this idea that you already touched on that, that, er, he, that he explains that in every basically corner of the world – for all intents and purposes, is a television screen that's has to be on all the time unless the power's out. Right. And it's constantly pumping this uh this state propaganda, and but it's also listening and watching. And so, you know, he explains how there's really nowhere in his flat he can go other than this one little alcove uh to be out of the sight and, and earshot of these screens. And again, I mean that's doesn't take a doesn't take a uh, you know a, a PhD in literacy, literature to see the parallels to what we're dealing with now between the cell phones and the smart TVs and the iPads and the Kindles and everywhere we go, we have these screens, many of which now have you know voice recognition software. In fact, somewhere along the way, I made a comment. He's talking about microphones listening to him even out in the country and them having this voice recognition technology so that they could pin that voice to a party member i mean just turn on turn on pay any attention to the tech industry they're working on that all the time right so Mm -hmm. you know you can activate siri with your voice you can turn on a television with a voice they're obviously yeah i mean alexa you've heard of people who are listening to the radio and somebody on the radio will say, hey, Alexa, and then their Alexa comes on, right? Yeah. Like, all these things are listening to us all the time. It's kind of it's kind of self-inflicted because we are so dependent on all these things. Oh, dude, that's... But I don't know yeah, how absolutely. to how you would, like, get away from it, uh, especially if you, you know, have a job. <laughs> like, here's your laptop. This is your responsibility. Here's your cell phone. Make sure it's on if I need to get a hold of you. Uh, the only way to really, I think, get away from that would be to just like the guy Roland Welker that won uh, season seven of alone, dude, he's like a hermit and lives in Alaska and just spends his entire existence in the bush and doesn't talk to people other than the people he takes hunting. He's an outfitter. And that's really, I think that that's the only way you could ever do something like that is to just live off the land, self-sustaining into in this modern world we live in. Certainly in a first world country anyway. Yeah. I mean, it, certainly seems like that to your point i i mean i I feel like i it's appealing (laughs) it's kind of appealing well i think even more it's oh it's appealing to go off the grid like that yeah yeah of course it is and the more that's why we all like to like when we go to the mountains why it's so nice to get detached from all that stuff for a week for you know for an archery elk hunt or name any other justified pursuit in the backcountry there are already studies you know that, that have been done that are being done that demonstrate that we desperately need it, that you need a technological Sabbath, mm-hmm. um, whatever frequency you can achieve it. Uh, we're, we're too plugged in. Yeah. Um, there's just no doubt about it. And that's anybody who does take that break, whatever, however long it is, they all, everybody reports like once <laughs> it's like any, it's like kicking sugar or cigarettes. It's like, 
the first day you're almost shaken because you're like reaching for a pocket where their phone's supposed to be and out of boredom. But then there's this kind of moment people describe where you realize I don't need that damn thing. I can just be. And, mm -hmm. you know, then you come back and you plug back in and all the good work you did gets erased pretty quickly. <laughs> right. Right. <clears throat> anyway, he talks about uh, in that first three pages, again, the ministry of truth, which we already touched on that that's where he works. That's, he talks about the various ministries of uh, this socialist empire, but the ministry of truth, which concerns itself with the news, entertainment, education, and the fine arts, the ministry of peace, peace which concerns itself with war, right. ministry of love, which maintain law and order, and the ministry of plenty, which was responsible for economic affairs and which he leaves off, rarely ever delivered enough. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Um, I mean, he's spending half of the time like searching for razor blades just because like there's right. not enough. Or they are always talking about, uh, are we going to have enough shoelaces for our boots? Like, it, it, it clearly they are living in a time of in, inadequate supplies, food, power. There's no, there's never enough of of anything. It seems like. Right. And the, but Other the scary, than the gin, which the government gives yeah, you. <laughs> exactly. The, the scary thing is, as you work through the book, you, he makes it clear that all that's by design. Right. right. I think a lot of people look at the scarcity of, say, the USSR, right, and the bread lines that we're all at least somewhat familiar with. And we think, yeah, that's because when you try to centrally plan an entire economy, you just... It, you know, a capitalist response would be, yeah, the central planning is never going to generate enough, right? There's no, uh, there's no motives for, for profit, which, which create efficiencies. Um, you know, there's no, there's no incentives related to supply and demand, but the way he's looking at it is like, by giving you just less than what you really need, they, that keeps you super dependent on that system. Right. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes to the concept we've touched on numerous times. And I know you're particularly animated by of like welfare, right? Give someone welfare and it's just barely enough to half-assedly make it right. If you go get a job, you, you eventually lose that welfare and it may be a job that barely pays any more than the welfare it almost makes it not worth it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. <clears throat> what did you it's think a, about the uh, party uniform? Everyone has to wear blue overalls. Man, I mean, some of that goes to like the root philosophy of the different worldviews, right? Uh, it's funny because the vast majority of these idiot kids storming the streets this summer in the name of Marxism um, have an iPhone in their pocket. Uh, probably drove their own car to the protest, right? Get to wear whatever clothes they want. Um, and and didn't generally tend to have their own very distinct style, dyeing their hair, stuff like that. But, but real Marxists believe that all of that crap is, um, is just a sign of decadence, right? Like the, the, the problem with capitalism is from their mind, right? That, that it creates this split between the haves and the have-nots, right? And he talks about in much later in the book, the, 
the desire of socialism from those who are seeking it is that everybody gets the same, but everybody gets more. But the reality is that once socialism is ushered in, those in control of it, they're going to make sure everybody gets the same, but everybody's going to get less. And they're going to get more. I mean, it's right. They're going to get theirs. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the, 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 I mean, you hear this kind of stuff from Bernie, right? Uh, from professors, especially. You ever notice how many professors have the exact same style? Like a little it, uh, cardigan and. Yes, usually some shit. Like you can imagine a professor, right? In like a shabby old tweed jacket with elbow patches that he's been wearing for like 30 years and he wears the same one every single day, right? There's, there's no color. There's no style. There's no variation to the outfit, right? They just always sort of show up in the same, you know, quasi-professional, somewhat shabby outfit. Same thing with, you know, you, you see a lot of, especially leftist type female professors are, they shun makeup, right? Their hair always looks kind of frizzy and they all just look kind of homely and gross, right? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but they, yeah. they do. Right. And it's because they, they think of, again, it's sort of style and, you know, appearances as, um, you know, super surface level, which they are. Uh, very superficial because that's redundant. Um, but you know, something to be eschewed because it's not, uh, it's not for serious intellectuals, right? Serious yeah, intellectuals but- don't need all that shit. All they need is their brains and the ability to have a conversation. Yeah. And, and so I guess what I'm getting at is even that you see parallels to it in these modern Marxists, but yeah, I mean, it's all yes, geared I, towards, I was- going down that road with you right i mean because you see the party the people in the party in oceana were these blue overalls we just talked about how these you know antifa punks um the basically the caucasian folks who have joined in this you just described them as having basically some style some flair in their everyday life but they're so quick to give it up to don all black and start marching you know it's like giving right. up that personal uh, f- liberty, that personal freedom to express yourself how you want. And now you're just a member of this group for what See, you think is the greater good. Right. But the problem is what they think is <clears throat> once they take power, then they'll have the right. And so will everybody else to have some kind of, quote, freedom. Right. How, do, how well did that work out for them in Seattle? Right. It, it, never, it never has. It won't. Um, I mean, like they had their little utopia there yeah. where they took over downtown and then they were like, wait a second. We don't, where are the police at? Who? There's crimes being committed in here. We need the, we need the cops. Oh wait, you just defended the, you defunded the police. Sorry. Yeah. They, they, they set up this idea that there is an underground movement that's against the party. That's against uh, English socialism, what they call Ingsoc, right? Mm-hmm. Um, trying to undermine it with their own ideals, right? And that, that guy's name is Goldstein, and he wrote a book. And so there's like these passages from that quote book that basically explain this evolution. I thought that was some of the best stuff in the book. Did you? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, where he really explains like going from the rationale and the logic through to the dystopian well, up. So this guy, right? O'Brien, uh, who basically yeah. has a higher place in the party, they have this moment where they kind of 
because you can't have a, a look on your face. That's called face crime schism. Right. If the tele screen picks up any discrepancy from your normal face, like one of angst or uh, curiosity, then it, it like it catches that. It flags it, and then you can be guilty of face crime. And but they share this look, and like um, Winston knows, and this goes on for like years because you can't ever talk to someone alone. You can't get away from the telescreen. You can't. Big Brother's always watching, whole life. Yeah, yeah. Finally, um, him and his girlfriend uh, Julia, um, which that's a whole other thing we have to get into that relationship. They realize O'Brien is like one of the brotherhood, but it's total setup because O'Brien screws him in the end because he's like one of the people at the higher levels of the party who has everything. They go to his house. He has wine. They're like Winston never had had red wine. Um, And he's the one that gave him the book anyway, which totally just set him up. Right. And and that kind of touches on where I was going with it, which is he explains how or, or, or this 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 thought crime book right explains how there's always been three basically casts or three types of people right the the highs the middles and the lows is how they basically break it down right and the the lows are always you know uh, oppressed and 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 kind of hate their place but they usually can't even see their way out of it the middles are always gunning for the high spot and the highs are always gunning to keep their spot right and the funny thing to me that getting back to like the the uniform right and like what we see with antifa and their black outfits right is that um from what i can tell those are basically the 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 useful idiots which is a concept that he he touches on at at one point um the idea that uh keeping people somewhat uh you know ignorant basically and, and preventing them from understanding is how you kind of keep them as a tool for your agenda, right? Mm-hmm. You have these Antifa types out there putting on that uniform, fighting for this revolution, but they're not the ones that are going to get to jump to the top. The ones that are going to jump to the top are already sort of in the battle for the top to begin with, right? They're the left in this country in in, in institutional places of power. Pelosi. Yep politics and and, uh, education and media in particular, which by the way, he lists those three things like specifically as the party, right? Like those, those three groups make up the, the ideological base for this whole book later on. But um, is there a, uh, you know, we need to, we need to do this. We need to do this. We need to get like a, just an Antifa website and we just sell black pants, black shirt, and black mask. And it's like 25 bucks all in. And we just, you know, sell that online. I bet we'd be rich, dude. You know, what's hilarious, dude, is I heard just yesterday <laughs> that there's a Antifa chapter. They call it the Rose City Antifa, which is Rose City is like the nickname for Portland. That's capitalism. If we could be, ca- we could capitalize on they have, <laughs> Dude, they have a merch site online. Oh, they do? Ro- Rose City Antifa sells merch. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know. The, get I, your I, Antifa t- starter kit no, no, here. No. <laughs> we're not too late it shows there's a market there <laughs> right uh it's funny oh um, man what do you think about like towards the beginning they have like these on the on the telescreens um you know they're always putting this propaganda and then they have like mandatory like viewings they have to go to at, like the community. yeah the two minutes hate and all that yeah yeah so two minutes of hate is different that's where they're just like the big brothers on there and they're talking about their wars and their successes and um 
the, the people don't even know if the wars are being fought for real or what's going on, but they'll put that propaganda on there. And then everyone like, it's like a, a, a cultish reaction. Everyone starts chanting and screaming and cheering for their, the, you know, the military accomplishments and, um, the, and Winston even joins in. He doesn't even know why he's doing it. It's because right. it's, it's that, uh, you know, communal, like we've talked about previously, um, like in New York city, they just make it easy for everybody. And, and this is the same thing. It's like everyone else is doing it. And then he gets sucked into it and he's sitting there cheering. And, and then one of the most disturbing things kind of in the same vein was they play these movies at these, um, community gatherings. Uh, and they're showing a film where a woman and a kid are like essentially shot from a helicopter. They're in a boat and the woman, uh, just fall. The, actually there's a dude, he falls in the water, big fat guy and the water just turns bloody because he's getting shot full of bullet holes and the audience cheers. Then a bomb is dropped on the boat and there's just a, like a young kid's arm floating in the water and everyone goes crazy and is cheering. And just to this, uh, you know, incredulous violence that they're seeing on this film, uh, which just goes to show you just that how brainwashed these people have become desensitized to all violence, even against children. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they're Those using an underlying theme in this book. Yeah. Big time. In fact, that was kind of where I was going to go with it next, but to kind of wrap this thought up, like they, one of the kind of major running themes. And one thing I'd like to try to do throughout this is to try to pick up on some of these, like of those, right. These sort of yeah. major running themes that have maybe lots of touch points to, to what we're dealing with in modern society. But um, the violence reminds but me it's, of the it's emotion- writing. Exactly. What we're seeing today. Yes. They not, not just that dude, but this idea of anti-racism contagious deal. Yeah. 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 Well, right. So, so the, so these, these protests spread like wildfire fire across the country, right? I guess you could call it mob mentality. Yeah, totally. Right. I mean, it, it <clears throat> it's getting folks uh, emotionally riled up such that all they can focus on is the uh, kind of focal point of their anger, right? Or whatever has been presented as the reason for their anger, the reason for their oppression, right? And kind of blinding them to everything else, right? Like that's, it's one of the, it's a psychological tool that they use in the book to keep everybody beholden to the party to constantly bombard them with this violent imagery coming from these, you know, fake wars that they're having with the, you know, supposed bad guys, right? And it, and it keeps everybody in a perpetual state of fear and anxiety, um, keeps them rallied around the party, but it also gives them a way to weed out those who aren't sufficiently uh beholden right so 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 this this these protests this summer right they spread like wildfire frankly under embellishment at best false pretenses at worst right we've talked about the statistics that there's 15 unarmed black men a year killed by the police right but they're but then lebron says they're being hunted every time they leave their house right so so there's this false propaganda it leads to these demonstrations at which these people are chanting, you know, it ends up being very much a, a sort of a cult spiritual like uh, environment, right? Literally, you know, with the, with the chanting and the, the uh, yeah, you know, this early this summer, there were people washing people's feet in the street to show their, 
you know, white people washing the feet of black people as like penance for the sins of their forefathers. There's all this, all this like almost religious symbolism, right? But then <clears throat> those who don't come forward, this, this concept of anti-racism, which I, if I'm not willing to wash a, a black person's feet, I'm a racist. Now. You're a racist, right? If you're not willing to throw I Molotov frankly, cocktails in like, Kenosha, Wisconsin in the middle of the night. I don't like feet that much. So well, my wife has pretty feet, but those are really the only feet I'm like comfortable touching. So forget that other nonsense of washing someone else's feet. <laughs> <laughs> I know Jesus did it, you know, but he's better than me. And I don't know, try to be like him in other aspects. Probably not that one. Well, the big thing was Jesus did it voluntarily as an act of love, right? This is being done. Um, this is being compelled. And, and I think that's the point, right? Is you, they, they've, they've used propaganda to gin up a fury. And then those who don't jump into the fury get labeled as uh, the enemy, right? And, and that's really what anti-racism means. That's what Ibram X. Kendi and uh, the lady that wrote the 1619 Project and the lady that wrote the White Fragility book, they're all demanding that if you don't acknowledge your own evil racist core as a white person, irreparable, that you're white. The lady who wrote White Fragility is basically saying, Robin D'Angelo, I think, that white, that you that you have to purge yourself of whiteness. <laughs> a white lady, right? Who's getting paid to go around and teach people this crap. Um, I talk about the root of the issue, okay? Yeah. All of them are anti-capitalists until somebody's offering them a check, interestingly. Mm, of course. Pricks, yeah. but... Um, so, so yeah, they, they, they drum up this narrative, they drum up this emotion, <clears throat> they drum up this actual movement. And then again, they use that movement to identify allies versus, uh, versus enemies. And that's, that's exactly what the demonstrations you're talking about, the two minutes hate exercise where they, you know, you, you said it, but they, they, they spend every single day in the middle of the afternoon, I think it's at like two o'clock, they have the screens all start playing this this two minute long thing and all the party members are expected to gather around the nearest screen, scream obscenities, get all riled up as they show the faces of the enemies of the party and you know bombard them with their propaganda. And if you're not fervent enough, rap, you know, screaming loudly enough, not you know, visibly into this exercise, then you're labeled a thought criminal and you're taken out, right? Real quick, I guess uh, there's something to clarify. So the book breaks down those three classes of people, right? Well, as it applies to the book, that was in general principle. As it applies to the book, there's the upper class is what they call the inner party. Those are basically right. the bosses of the party. They're the ones That's to your point. class. That's right. They're the ones to your point that get the fine chocolate and the fine coffee and have the bigger flat and have servants and get better clothing. They get better uniforms, right? Servants. Isn't that weird? Like, oh, wait, right. okay. I thought we were uh, a right. socialist. The, that's right. <laughs> no, the, the, no, actually, the, the, you have slaves. In the inner party, we have slaves. The ones that are in charge read our political class in Hollywood and uh, billionaires in, in Silicon Valley. They're going to get all the finest things. But everybody else is going to get their ration, right? Exactly. Then there's the then there's the outer party, and that's Winston and his girlfriend. And I think they say at some point, like roughly like ten percent of the population, like five percent of the population is the inner party, and like ten percent of the population is the outer party. And those people are just the day to day worker bees of the socialist regime, the ones who are 
most at risk for being vict- guilty of quote thought crime or wrong think or and all these new speak words which we'll get to and then there's the the other 85 percent of the population is what's called the proletariat or the proles right um mm-hmm. and they're just the commoners and they're not really subject to all of this crap because as the commoners uh you know, more or less the uneducated, unwashed masses, um, they don't jeopardize the party because they don't realize their own strength. They don't realize their own power. There's nobody with enough brain power to rally them to some kind of revolution. Anybody like that is either dead. Well, yeah, either, either killed or brought into the party. Right. Um, so Anyway, that, that's, I think that's a good. He does a great job of painting a picture, though, of, of the, the proles. There's this big, fat, bosom lady who uh, Orwell describes in the book and, and Winston's. These are Winston's reflections of, of observing her because he, he sees her from this window every night and she is she's singing as she's doing laundry. And he's like, Winston's like, she probably was a pretty gal at one point in life and then had kids and now she has her kids have kids and he's she's sitting there doing laundry for all these people and it's day after day and then she's cooking and never gets a break and she's sitting there singing and and he's like, I can't believe that she's happy. You know, which was pretty eye-opening. She had, in his opinion, nothing. But in probably in her opinion, he's the one that has nothing. Like she's free to do what she wants. Free to yeah, sing. she's at least free to sing a song, right? Exactly, yeah. and and the, you know, and he hints at that throughout, right? That as he as he like has this awakening. The book is about this guy's awakening, right? He's he starts mm-hmm. off frustrated with the massive restrictions placed on him by the party, and then you know by the end of it, he's openly revolting against it, and uh, and then getting dealt with accordingly. But, you know, kind of throughout that awakening, he spends more and more time among the proles and starts to see how they get to go on into a uh, bar. Uh, yeah, right. A bar. Yeah, I was trying to say a pub mm-hmm. uh, and, and grab a pint whenever they want. And yeah, you know, sing a happy tune or a sad tune, uh, have sex, you know, you, you kind of name it, right? Have personal belongings, uh, dress in whatever clothing they can get their hands on. So that they have, despite being like, really poor and you know arguably oppressed more freedom than those that are beholden to the party ideology and to me man that is like a perfect little microcosm over what we're dealing with in this country right now you have the left with this new age ideology that they've constructed that they demand uh they they demand uh adherence to right on everything from the transgender stuff we've talked about to the climate change stuff to um the idea that the that the u.s is inherently racist to its core and needs to be burned to the ground that we're all racist in our hearts all these shitty ideals and you know everybody else that disagrees we all just we're all treated by the quote mainstream media by social media by you know our tech overlords all these politicians as the deplorables right? Like Hillary Clinton referring to all the rest of us who don't buy woke bullshit as deplorables. She should have just called us proles. I have a, the uh, same thing. a Ronald Reagan. It's a picture of Ronald Reagan holding a, a glass of champagne and it says, uh, and I wear this proudly, it says, here's to all us deplorables. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah, Hillary. Ex- exactly. That. It's like it, it, she turned it into a rallying cry for us, essentially. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one statement weighed heavily in her loss to, to Trump four years ago. Just that yeah. one statement. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the word ally to the party, and there's no bigger ally in this in this book than the children and how right. the the party has indoctrinated them with this belief that, dude, these kids are turning their own parents in for thought crime. Uh, Winston's neighbor had a dream, and he the, the dude was talking out loud in his dream, and it was something um, just out of the ordinary. And his daughter, like five-year-old daughter, went to the authorities and turned him in for thought crime, which he said it in his sleep. He didn't even, like, mutter the words when he was coherent. And he gets, next thing you know, he's in some dark dungeon with Winston later in the book, uh, which he's like, what are you in for? And he's like, I don't even know what I said. I said something in my sleep and my daughter reported me to the thought police. Yeah. So but the whole, I mean, the kids are, you know, that's what they're used throughout this book and they're, they're taught hate. And you want to talk about the, going back to what we've talked about in previous episodes, the destruction of the family unit taking away the bond between a parent and a child is I don't know if there's a, a more egregious thing you could do, uh, but this party depends on that and functions off of uh, turning these kids into, into spies. Absolutely. Just like you, we talked about um, on BLM. the ir- irreversible damage podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, you brought up or, the, yeah. the Hitler youth, right? They had the same basic thing in, Soviet Russia, they have the same basic thing today in China, and it's happening here in America. I, uh, indoctrination of children as young, again, in the case of irreversible damage and the transgender issue, as young as five and six-year-old kindergartners, right? Being indoctrinated into ideologies that aren't based in anything like reality, right? Such that, how hard is it going to be for you know children who are being taught at five or six years old a certain way of believing things how hard is it for that child to ever break forth break free of that i don't i mean in a lot of cases it's impossible right yeah they that's all they know and so one of the notes i have and i think it's at least somewhat related this idea of the, the thought police and the ministry of truth right the thought police are this organization that if you make the wrong face they can come and arrest you right and make you disappear that made me think of cancel culture right if you have the wrong thought on social media you can get yourself canceled and be uh, rendered null and void, right? But still, I'm still banned on Facebook, by the way. So really? that's going. It's going on a month now. It said you're banned for three days for this uh, violating community standards. That was a month ago, and I have been trying and trying like hell to get my account back to no avail. Uh, but basically, for thought crime or face crime, whatever you know, doing the wrong yeah. thing that didn't align with uh, big tech. Yeah, I didn't realize you were still. Man, I mean, this is exactly what I'm talking about. The uh, the other note I was going to make, and it kind of gets back to the, the kid part, but the the rewriting of history. I mean, that's going on right now. We've touched on it. I don't know how many of the folks that listen to us or fully understand the 1619 project that the New York Times came out with two years ago. Mm-hmm. But essentially, this lady, um, her name is escaping me at the moment, but this 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 writer wrote a a series in the New York Times, I think in the summer of like 2018, where she basically argued from the very first paragraph that the American Revolution was actually fought to protect slavery. That it wasn't for the colony's freedom. Uh, It wasn't about taxation without representation. 
it was about a small handful of Southerners who were worried about the king uh, meddling, you know, because the king of England was actually trying to recruit American slaves to the Redcoat side, right? This, this, this one little sliver of the overall movement, she had pinned that as the entire reason for the movement in the first place, the entire well, reason that's for such the revolution. bullshit because they had slaves in England at that exact same time. I mean, it's they, bullshit they because yeah. it's bullshit because the words all men are created equal were used over the next 36 months after signing of the Declaration of Independence as a justification for freeing the slaves in three of the 13 colonies. Right. They were talking about it, dude. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is known to have been fighting for abolition in the Virginia Assembly while still being a slaveholder. Right. There's no nuance or understanding of time and place among the left, but that. The main point being, she rewrote history, won a damn Nobel Prize for it, even though every major and serious historic, historian in America, basically the Times just got inundated with, uh, you know, Harvard professors, thankfully, I mean, even some of the most woke institutions, right, had these people coming out of the woodwork saying, that's not true, none of this is true, your whole premise, your whole thesis is based on a bullshit fallacy, right? It's they ran like it anyway. Bruce Jenner winning sports person of the year or whatever, like for being mentally ill. <laughs> right. We're celebrating it, it, the wrong things, man. Seriously. Yeah, but but so so it's funny because now they've gone back just like Winston would do in the Ministry of Truth. They've gone back and changed it. They have edited back the online version of this these stories to eliminate these falsehoods bold-faced lies that she admitted at the time were designed to paint to repaint history in a certain light not necessarily to be factual right but they ran it as though it was fact now they're backing down from it changing it although they're not acknowledging they're changing it right they're not coming back out and saying hey we're revising the 1619 project it's just disappearing quietly hmm. right but it's already the cat's out of the bag right it's already being taught in high schools and other schools across the country as as the new fact so why would my, they my why is, would they accept that? Why would they be teaching that dude, some lady's opinion? Because they want to indoctrinate a generation of kids to believe that's true. And like I said, once that cat's out of the bag, there's this guy named Howard Zinn who wrote uh, something like it's called the, the the real history of America or the untold history of America or something like that. Back in like the mid to late 70s, he wrote a book. He's the guy who first claimed that Christopher Columbus and his crew were like rampaging, murderous, rapist uh, demons, right? Even though Christopher Columbus's journal spoke extensively about how he would admonish his sailors and demand that they treat the natives they came across fairly and humanely. He made that shit up out of whole cloth. He had citations. Dude, I listened to one of the most enlightening podcasts I've ever heard probably a month back. And it was a, again, a Harvard historian, a professor of history at Harvard, a lady. So pretty on, smart. Yeah. Yeah. Taking all of this crap to task. And she said, she went back to this guy, Howard Zinn's book. Now his, his book is like the foundation of all of this new age thinking about American history, right? It's the foundation of the concepts of the 1690s. You can't project. have new age thinking on history. It doesn't even, it's like a oxymoron. He history cited, happened. You don't you don't get to rewrite it having this new age like well, well actually, hey this is so yeah, so 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 here's how he gets away with it right because we've all heard the phrase 
the truth uh, or history is written by the victors, right? Right. So, so, you know, it's understandable that American history up until say the last 20 years had been taught maybe somewhat one-sidedly. And so his, his goal was to try to share the other side. Now I can tell you that I remember being taught about slavery, about what we did to the Native Americans, et cetera, et cetera. But that was always balanced against the other good stuff, right? The, the good parts of society and how we have come so far from those days, right? Mm-hmm. The problem now is the negative is all that the indoctrination program will focus on. They will ign- ignore or flat lie about the positives in order to brainwash everybody into hating this country. But getting back to this historian from Harvard, man, she ran down this dude's citations and he made them up out whole cloth. He cited a book. She went and reviewed that book and the claim he made in the book that came from that book didn't even, didn't even exist. It wasn't there. Wow. Specifically, if I recall, that was related to this concept of Columbus and his crew being these murderous rampages. So this dude lied about who Christopher Columbus was, what his agenda was when he got here. And that lie took root in the late seventies, became fact by the mid eighties, such that now Chris Columbus day doesn't exist anymore. It's indigenous people's day. Wow. It changed it based on a lie, dude. Yeah. What could be more ministry of truth, new speak 1984 than that. So my point is <clears throat> to your point, <laughs> this is a Brain. sad revelation, but I didn't even know Christopher Columbus Day didn't exist anymore. I think it was like one of those days you got out of school as a kid. And as an adult, it's like a who gives a shit day. It's just I got to go in my office and work. So I didn't even realize that. Yeah, man. Yeah. Huh. I, I, maybe at the federal level, it's still called Columbus Day, but certain states have uh, kind of renamed. I think even at the federal level, it's been renamed, man. I'll uh, I'll dig into that and post it on the site and on the show notes and everything. But yeah, dude, I mean, indigenous people's day is now what wokesters call Columbus day, whether it's been formally changed or not. I, wow. I have to check, but, but the point is you've that. certainly heard the narrative that Columbus was this evil murderous SOB who we shouldn't uh, celebrate anymore. Right? Like, Oh, for sure. Right. And again, that all came from this guy, Howard's in, and it was all fiction. He made it up. Now, he sprinkled in probably 80% of the crap that he claimed in that book was true. Again, not balanced by any other positives, right? A fully one-sided negative telling of American history, but some of the most crucial cultural linchpins, like the story of Columbus, like the founding of, of America and what they meant when they said all men are created equal, all that sort of stuff, he lied about. Mm-hmm. And it's been proven that he lied about. But it was put out there and adopted by people who were sympathetic to the point. Now it's being taught until you're getting back to how I got off on this tangent. You've got young kids. <laughs> you've got, you know, early young adults like your brother, my sister, yeah. claiming those that, that have adopted those claims as the predominant basis of their worldview. Right. And it, it was all based on lies to start with and lies and, and at least half truths. Right. So getting back to your point though, the, 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 the episode we did on Abigail Schreier's book about this transgender issue, she talks extensively and I don't know if we covered it well enough about how the woke mob recruits these kids to turn on their parents. That's again, exactly what's being described here that, that the party 
indoctrinates these children through actual, you know, programs, right? They've got the, the, uh, the, they call them the spies, but the spies are basically kids up to 12 or 15 years old. And then there's like uh, a group that they join in their late teens. And then there's a group that they join in their twenties, but all of them are geared towards completely brainwashing, you know, generations, not only to buy into the party's doctrines uh, and orthodoxy, but also to create in them spies who will turn coat, you know, turn in anybody who dare question, who dare think for themselves. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen Jojo rabbit um, movie and like the first scene is this kid having a conversation with Hitler and Hitler they're in this room and he's like, say Heil Hitler. And the kid's like, Heil Hitler. He's like, no, Heil Hitler. And finally the kid gets it right. And then the kid runs out into the street yelling, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. You know, it's, it's, it's that which actually happened in, in Germany. I'm not saying Hitler did it to individual kids, but you know, that's, that's what those kids ended up thinking. That was their mentality. I might need to watch that movie. I've heard it's really good. I've just seen, I think I've seen the first couple scenes uh, like three times and then had too many Lone Star beers and fell asleep. So, yeah, I've heard it was really good too. And it's uh, supposed to be very strange that it's like a comedy based on Hitler. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, 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 you know, it's a perfect recent example of kind of what we're talking about. Um, but this idea of, of, of how they go about that, right? They, in pages like 34, 35 ish, I, I noted several specific passages. In one, so he's talking about this idea of, of the party, you know, engineering history to meet their agenda, right? Quote, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the pre- present controls the past. Like, you know, this guy's in recreating the past has tainted now the, Latin, the next 40 years of American history. And therefore, two generations of American minds, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. If the party could, if the party could thrust its hand into the past and say of this or that event, it never happened. That surely was more terrifying than mere torture and death, right? Dude. The, yeah, because ultimately, the Hunter Biden Winston, thing. Winston eventually is no longer afraid of torture or death. I mean. So what you're saying is true. Right. Yeah. It, it, <clears throat> he, it's all about controlling the mind, right? The whole book is really about controlling the mind. He, he, he says reality control, they called it in Newspeak, which let's touch on Newspeak for a minute. Again, the th- idea of controlling the mind. The party has made up its own language in the book called Newspeak. It's this evolving language, and the goal of it is to basically, <laughs> I, I wrote it down, where's that at? Uh, old speak, a reg- regular old English, yeah. he said, with all its vagueness and useless shades of meaning, <laughs> right? It allowed for freedom of thought, yeah. and they couldn't have freedom of thought. So Newspeak pared down the entire world of the English language into like 10 or 15% of that, right? But it has these concepts like thought crime and that we talked about, a wrong think, um, double speak or double think, meaning um, seeing one thing, but pretending you're seeing something else. Now, this is a good one. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which when they're torturing Winston later on in the book, I mean, that's the whole thing is that's the whole point. He knows what is true. He knows that he saw those photographs of these three revolutionaries uh, from the old days that he was forced to destroy. And, you know, he knows, you know, that the sky is blue and they're going to try to tell him. No, the the actual example in the book is when O'Brien is torturing him. He uh, says, how many fingers am I holding up? And he was always holding up uh, four, uh, five fingers. And Winston, or it was four. And Winston would say, it's four. And O'Brien would say, no, it's five. And he would say, no, it's four. And then he'd torture him some more until, until he finally said what he wanted him to hear, which he's, he knows he's looking at four fingers, but he has to say he's looking at five. Right. Until he believes until he's like, well, until he believes it. Yeah, and sort of relatedly, um, there's this concept in the book of, of them demanding that you acknowledge that two plus two equals five, right? And... Forcing... No, is that, that's what it was. Then it wasn't. Yeah. Expe- well, it might have been. Well, no, no. Both, there, but... there, there was there was both. Right. There's yeah. the idea that two plus two equals five. Then there's the torture scenes where he's holding up four fingers, but demanding that that that, uh, that he Winston says five. Call it five. Right. 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 It, it's the same. It's the same concept for the same yeah. purpose. Right. Um, the problem with Winston was that because he dared to think for himself, he had to be brainwashed back in through the torture through the fingers, right? Um, whereas a better member of the party who bought and stayed with the Orthodox would just accept the idea that two plus two equals five. It, like I said, I think during the transgender episode, it's, it's just like that. Being told that men can have babies and uh, women can have erections, you know, whatever. Like, Or you could have a male brain and a female body as a five-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah. Which is what they say in California. Uh, yeah. Well, you keep going with this because I, I do want to get into the family unit, marriage, sex, all that stuff at some point. It's tough to. You know, if you were done with that, with that thought, I, I let's talk about this relation, the relationships. Like, so Winston's actually married, and if you go back before that to this indoctrination in his family, he barely remembers his dad. He remembers his mom and his baby sister when he's like ten years old. Is the last memory of them. She's eventually uh, taken away. And he, he leaves, he, they get in a fight, he leaves and comes back and she's just gone. And so then he's immediately, he's a kid and he's, you know, indoctrinated into the party at 10 years old, but he still has these, these, uh, memories of her, not really good memories though. And, um, you see later on in his personal relationship with his wife, like she was very minor character, um, but he had no love for her she had no love for him it was basically a contract he said he could have dealt with it but except for the sex like she did looked at that as like a, their duty to try to make a baby once a week or something their duty and, to the party yeah yeah duty to yeah duty to the party to have sex to try to procreate so that the party could come and indoctrinate the kid uh make more make more party members go and go forth and multiply <laughs> but she she looked at it as a job, and her he, he said to her that her face in in the act was just like non-existent, like she wasn't there. Uh, and so eventually she left. He doesn't know what happened to her. Doesn't really care at all. Uh, he has sex with he goes and has sex with a proletariat prostitute. He reflects on that because I I mean I guess like just a normal dude 
one that's kind of like bucking the trend here in this book against the party. He wants to have sex. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah, and it's repressed, you know, for an yeah. entire lifetime. And yeah, it comes out that way, I guess. Um, yeah. No attraction. They don't want you to be attracted to other people. No, no pleasure in sex. These are all certain things that, that you know, Winston mentions. Uh, mentions. Um, approved marriages. Oh, yeah, the party has to approve the marriages, first and foremost. So they're not going to let you just get married to someone that you're attracted to and that you want to have sex with. No, no, they want you to go into this legal contract with someone of the opposite sex. And uh, let's see. So, yeah, she leaves, and then he goes on. And let's get to Julia, who he finally... Well, let me me throw something in there on on that. Um Man, I, I like wrote, having sex a lot with my wife. Like that's like the best part of being married. Uh, and then you get these kids is like a byproduct of that, which is also a great thing. Right, but the whole point is I'm gonna have sex um, tonight. If, I guarantee if you, you. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, so, I cut my some, mullet. So Aaron was like, "Man, that you're looking pretty good." I'm like, "Yeah, maybe you should give me some sugar." Yeah, you should probably for both of y'all's well-being just leave the mullet. In the past, <laughs> let's, in fact, let's rewrite history as though you never had it. Let's, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so so enjoyment in a marriage, finding a mate and loving them, right? Those that creates the potential for inequality, right? Because somebody else that doesn't have that is miserable while while you're happy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it also, I think, probably even, you know, I think Orwell may agree with this even more strongly. It gives you something to look for look to and uh be beholden to outside of you know in this context the party right the party had to be your everything in order for this system to work i i think again similarly left woke leftism you have to be wholeheartedly in it um to be uh part of it part of that click, right? And, and not sort of a threat to it. Because as soon as you start to question any of it, then the whole facade crumbles, right? Mm-hmm. And, their, and their power goes away. So there's that, but I had a quote that I wrote down where he says that, you know, basically to your point, they sort of arranged these marriages. They were only a means to make sure that the population continued. And the only reason they needed the population continued is because somebody had to do the work to make sure that the inner party got their niceties, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so marriage was uh, a contract arranged by the state. Uh, there was deliberately no love involved. His wife had been brainwashed to think that sex was gross and disgusting and only a means to this end of procreation, which meant that it was miserable and, um, you know, off-putting to him anyway but he they, so he, he said specifically all children were to be gotten by artificial insemination insemination and brought up in public institutions i mean that i wrote that down and i underlined it because it took me right again back to this california teachers association and the state of new jersey and all these woke uh indoctrinaires in in you know, leftist education who believe that their few vision for the future uh is the right one and are willing to undermine parents deliberately to make sure that the children of those parents uh, are marching towards their progressive utopia, right? Like it, yeah. 
it's well, the going same back thing. To even going so far said. as to say, even going so far as to say that once you check your child into a public school, you have surrendered your parental rights. Like that tied directly yeah. to this idea that, you know, bring children in through artificial insemination and then bring them up in public institutions. Go ahead. Well, no, I'm just going to say like breaking up the family unit, you take the father away. There's no other way to have a child other than through artificial insemination, which, you know, whether it's BLM or if it's the leftist, they don't really put much value in the father figure being a part of, of the family unit. Right. Not at all. Not at all. Like we've talked about, I mean, BLM most... the organization, not the, not the movement, just to clarify. Right. Right. The dot com. Yeah. Um, again, but it, it comes straight from the teachings of Marx. Destruction uh, of if, family unit is their a, goal. If a dad does what the vast majority of fathers have always done, which is teach their kids to stand on their own two feet, not be victims and um, to achieve, then uh, their entire their entire argument crumbles because there's nobody oppressed. There's no victims out there to go appeal to, right? Mm -hmm. They need people pointing fingers and blaming others for their suffering. That's, that's their shop troops, right? That's what they, <laughs> those are the people that they groom to, to carry this out. Dude, my weekend was so full of teaching my son toxic masculinity. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. Sweet. We went out and that. shot a limited ducks. I woke him up at 4.30 in the morning, seven-year-old kid. He jumps out of bed, puts on his camo. We're he's just asking me all these questions uh, about duck hunting. And he's been a couple times, you know, over the years. Um, and uh, we shoot the ducks. We clean them. Literally... Me and my buddy, we, we have 12 ducks there, and we're, we, we've cleaned them all out. And he goes, Dad, you guys didn't get the hearts out. And we'd already, we were like, all right, time to go. Like, oh. I looked at my buddy, and I'm like, dude, we got to get the hearts out. <laughs> and Henry's there. I open, the, you know, open up the body cavity, and Henry's just reaching in there, digging around, getting the hearts out. I got a cool picture of him just holding up the heart with a big old grin on his face. And the thing that made my weekend, and I, I'm smiling right now, just say, he said, Dad, thanks for taking me hunting. That's so awesome, man. Yeah, dude. I was like, this is what being a dad is about. And you you were doing the same thing last weekend with your oldest. She shot her first buck. Yep, weekend before last, but yep. Yeah, which is awesome. And then I saw the uh, the rite of passage on her face with the blood <laughs> on her cheek. That's right. She did the bite out of the heart, too, which she yes. did last year uh, yeah. with her first deer, not first buck. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, those are justified pursuits, man. And these kids soak it up. And, you know, just knowing that we're we're raising them the right way. Uh, just him saying, Dad, thanks for taking me hunting and him meaning it. I mean, that was all the affirmation that I needed. That I'm doing the right thing here. Yeah, obviously, man. I mean, but you know what? There's people out there that are looking at that picture and be like, you're raising a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, because they're morons. Right. I mean, they really are, dude. Again, it. <clears throat> they've been so, dude some of the notes that i have here it's hard to un, it's hard to figure out how to attack this so to anybody who kind of thinks we're just jumping around we're sorry but it's a read the book right it yeah you'll get it if you can if you'll just sit and read it but it, this idea that they have to replace common sense right and and tradition and pass down wisdom with party orthodoxy 
in order to uh, basically enslave the minds and maintain the power, right? That's, that's an overriding theme of the book. And, and we, we were just talking about it. It's relevant to what you were just talking about. We talked about the two plus two equals five and, and all that stuff. Like there is a whole generation of people who were you know, born within plus or minus 10 years of the Bambi movie who now believe that the things that you and I do for recreation and to provide food for our families are some sort of, like you said, precursor to a, uh, you know, to a serial killer. I, you know, from what I can tell, none of the kids that have committed these horrible mass murders at these schools had that type of influence in their lives. Most yeah, dude, of them, they'd be the ones wearing all black, like thinking Antifa was a cool thing to get involved with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so when I say that, I mean, I, like they've all been groomed to believe things that aren't true. Um, and then, you know, from that belief to label you as evil, us as evil, as, you know, raising children in an evil manner, um, yeah. because it doesn't comport with their sophisticated, uh, you know, group thing. yeah, exactly. Group thing. So let me, so on that note, right. I had a couple of things underlined and it gets to this exact thing in the end the party would announce that two and two made five and you'd have to believe it it was inevitable that they should make that claim sooner or later the logic of their position demanded it not merely the validity of experience but the very existence of external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy the heresy of heresies was common sense right <laughs> they had to they, again, all this newspeak stuff, all of it was geared at keeping you from thinking for yourself, from weighing the you know possible benefits and 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 and, and negatives of, of any given situation and coming up with your own mind. You had the orthodoxy and you either bought it hook, line, and sinker, which there's one point where he talks about like to be orthodox, to be a, a true party member member was to basically move through the world unconsciously, parroting all the crap that you were told to parrot. And never actually thinking about it because thinking is the only true freedom. So, in fact, he has this quote freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. Right? Mm. They had to undermine some of the simplest forms of truth two plus two equals five instead of four. Because if they got you to buy into that, they could get you to buy into anything. But if you refuse that, then you, you had a free mind and, and you, know, you had to be eliminated. You disappear. And th that was another thing. Um, when O'Brien is talking to, no, actually, Winston's reading the book of the Brotherhood. I guess when he's being tortured by O'Brien, he brings this up. And he's like, O'Brien's like, yeah, we, know, we no longer let you get, you know, have a, a martyrdom. You can't be martyred because then people rally around that. So you just right. vanish and you're nothing. You never existed. We, we rewrite history like you were never here. Yeah. He's like, back, back in the old days, we used to publicly execute people, but then they were martyrs and, you know, that just caused more rebellion. So now you never exist, um, which I thought was interesting. What did you think about like Julia's thoughts on the party versus Winston's to me? And this is his girlfriend. They, they kind of they have this love affair. They have a lot of sex, which I'm sure Winston would. I think that's the only reason why Julia was was involved. She wanted to be loved. She wanted a relationship. Not really. She didn't really come across as having any real desire to rebel against the party. She didn't care. Like Winston, he was like one one point I want to make is like he remembered when airplanes were invented, 
Right. Her interpretation of when airplanes were invented was that the party invented them because history had been rewritten since she was like 10 years younger than him. Right. And she didn't, but she, those things didn't, she didn't care. That was like, oh, who gives a shit about that? I don't care. Kiss me. Yeah, no, it's a, it, that's an awesome uh, point and definitely worth exploring some. So like he was born before the revolution, um, before or like right after while it was still in flux or something. Yeah. Um, so he remembered to your point, the stuff before the party had rewritten all of history where she was born after all she knew was the party. She knew the f- party was full of crap. She even yep. questioned, like, are these wars real? She doubts it. She thought some of the rocket bombs that would go off in you know, downtown London were actually being shot off by the party itself just to scare people, right? So she was, like, awake to yep. the BS, but then certain things, as he points out, she was blind to, um, like the, some of the basic history that she had been taught that she just took for granted. And the reality was, she, to your point... She rebelled out of um, she rebelled out of just a desire for uh, basically like like a hedonistic desire for pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. And and for sort of the game of trying to hide some of the things that she indulged, but not because she was trying to overthrow the party. Yeah, he was rebelling, having you know some vague recollection of what happened, what was what what came before. You know, his rebellion was actually against the party itself. She accepted the party as a simple fact that was inevitable and would always be. Yeah. Um, she just tried to skirt the rules and, uh, and get away with stuff, uh, which I, I think immediately about where we are. You know, you and I are in a super unique situation as uh, elder millennials. And that's a phrase I got from an awesome comedian, um, Eliza Schlesinger. She's really funny, <clears throat> um, but her. So I, had, I try to distance from that term as much as I can. Millennials, uh, right? But but so like I was looking at it yesterday, just randomly, and uh, Gen X, by most standards, ended in either like seventy nine or eighty, and the millennial generation begins in like eighty eighty one. So I was born in January of nineteen eighty one. Um, we straddled, you know, we were junior high, high school age kids when you know, AOL and Prodigy were coming out and people were getting online for the first time. Right. Right. Um, you know, we were college or, or graduate students when Facebook, you know, came out. Well, you were, so, I'm, I wasn't an overachiever. It took me like six years to get one degree. So that, yeah, whatever that age range, right? Like <laughs> early to mid twenties. The point Where's being the bong. That's, I'm looking for the bong in a six. Pack. No, I'm just kidding. That was that was someone else. I was one of my friends. I would never act like that. Not by your mid twenties, anyway. Right. Right. Well, 18. you know, my wife helped straighten me out too. Right. Uh, exactly. Um. But but no. So so to your point though, right? Like I've never identified with the millennials because I think of that as having a little bit different worldview. But we would be the very oldest people within a twenty year bracket known as the millennials, right? Well, so I guess we have a duty to talk some sense into the rest of them. Exactly. But, 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 but what I'm getting at is like, I can see this exact sort of dichotomy between like you and I would be Winston and yeah. <laughs> all odd connotations aside, like your brother would be Julia, right? Right. Like he'll do his own thing because he thinks he lives in a free world to the extent that he desires, yet he still buys and parrots all of the propaganda of the quote unquote party, as we've talked some about, right? Um, he, he buys the narratives of this severe oppression, 
right? And the need to, you know, bring Kamala Harris in uh, as VP because, hey, cool, black lady, despite the fact that she's actually uh, the kind of person that would, that would, you know, scoop you up in the middle of the night and take you to jail for thought. And not black. And I'm not kidding. Jamaican, Indian, not, uh, not African-American. So, right. So they can, again, they think it's cool because she looks black, but she's not African-American. So, well, but, but more importantly, they don't even care about her actual policies, right? No, all they care about is the feel good story of, of challenging uh, the 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 status quo, right? Yeah. So, so it, it relates exactly to this page that I've got marked. <clears throat> Y'all forgive me for reading some of these quotes, but I try to do it in a way where it sounds okay. In a way, the worldview of the party imposed itself most successfully on people incapable of understanding it. They could be made to accept the most flagrant violations of reality because they never fully grasped the enormity of what was demanded of them and were not sufficiently interested in public events to notice what was happening. Who Does that not sound just like what we're talking about, man. Like, yeah, I'm so pumped about Kamala. I don't really care that it turns out she put people in jail wrongfully and rigged their evidence to keep them there. Uh, black right. people she put in jail mostly. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, by lack of understanding, they remained sane. For like that's the part that of weed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for lack of understanding, they remained sane. Yeah. Yeah. They simply swallowed everything, and what they swallowed did them no harm because it left no residue behind, just as a grain of corn will pass undigested through the body of a bird. So uh, that last part, I feel there's another passage in here where he talks about, like, as he realizes what's going on around him when he watches them change, which is his job, as you pointed out, right? His job, he'll get a little note, and it says, you know, you got to change – this this history on this this one topic right some war hero that had turned out to uh have been working for the other side they had to like erase him from memory whatever right whatever it would be he he's seeing these these uh glitches in the matrix right these these falsehoods that are being perpetrated even even perpetuating them because of his job right and it drives him insane i feel the same way sometimes i look at what's happening in the country right now and i feel like the media lying to us so bold-facedly about things like i can't this can't be reality must i must be insane because nobody would be so blatant and and ballsy about it yet 73 to 4 million americans bought their bullshit because they're by their lack of understanding they remained sane right they simply swallowed everything like the quote here says if it's almost like you have a choice. You can just buy into the narratives. You can buy into the lies and just roll with it, which is what a good party member would do. Or you can have freedom of thought. There was a, there's a guy who, who they make vanish. Um, Simi or Simi, however you say yeah. it. Uh-huh. Early in the book, they make a guy vanish. <clears throat> and Winston, uh, he predicts it, right? They introduce us to him pretty early, the first hundred pages as this, uh, he's an author. Yeah, yeah, he's a nerd that, that works on the Newspeak language, right? Which is, like I said, constantly evolving. And so they're talking, and, and he's all about his Newspeak work, and the quote was, he's too intelligent. He sees too clearly, and he speaks too plainly. The party does not like such people. So Winston tells us he'll get erased, because even though he's 100%, this dude is bought in. Yeah. 100%. But he's smart and capable of clear thought, so he's a danger. So he has to go, right? So 
you know, again, it, in modern society, those of us who are truly open-minded, truly seeking truth, right, and applying what we perceive to our day-to-day lives, we're labeled bigots, uh, you know, racists, um, you know, stuck in the past, whatever. Those who blindly follow willingly because it makes them feel good or whatever, the, these narratives about institutional racism in the 1619, et cetera, you know, they're the ones that are really being, being targeted by it, but, but they're the only ones that can really even accept it because they're not willing to challenge the narratives. They're not really willing to think outside the box and assess what's actually happening around them. They're just like, oh yeah, clearly, um, you know, racism. Right. Yeah. Or, or or Trump is a, a dictator, a Nazi. He's a white supremacist. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, obviously, the media, Hollywood. You you know, I want to emphasize that yesterday I saw a tweet from Alec Baldwin, who's long been, you know, a Trump hater. Dude, he said when Trump dies, put him in a Nazi grave with a swastika on his headstone. I know. Dude, what is ridiculous? The, what if someone from the right wing said that about Obama? Um, neither thing would be true. Neither thing are true. Obama is probably not a racist. I don't think Trump has done a racist thing since he's been in office. Like, which is why so many African Americans are waking up to the fact that you know, hey, this guy is actually, I think, on our side. Like we talked about Ice Cube. Like, who's who's willing to entertain his idea for rebuilding the African American communities? Not the Democrats. But he's got three meetings with Trump in the White House. Um. But yet, if someone from the right said that about Obama, they'd be canceled. That'd be the end. Of, they'd be they'd vanish, right? Vanish, just like Simi in the book. Yeah, well, and you know, keep in mind, obviously, right, that this is a this is a novel, right? So everything's taken to the extreme. Maybe you don't get snatched up by the thought police in the middle of the night, but it's very easy, particularly with the tools of social media, to just silence a voice and it's the same basic outcome right like me being banned on facebook right now exactly you're still alive but for all intents and purposes you can't really carry your business forth the way you had in the past because Mm -hmm. one of the biggest megaphones that you have has been taken from you right and so you might as well not exist and dude i mean even even at sort of a higher level like twitter is a great example of this if you watch the news right now, especially cable news, what, you can't get two minutes into any, any segment without Twitter coming up, it seems? All they talk about is Twitter. Huh. There's only like, like uh, dude, I want to say like 25 million Americans out of 330 million that even have a Twitter account and only like six to eight are regular daily users. Yet, uh, really both sides... Uh, that the political slash intellectual talking head class, again, the people you see on cable news and all that stuff, that they live within this echo chamber of Twitter as if that's real life. The vast majority of human beings don't even have a damn account. Right. Yet, and yet all it work- is is words being typed. Right. It's not, it's not real life. Oh, it's- dude, dude, even that, I just thought about this. They put a word count on you on Twitter, right? One of the principles in this book is the idea that language free language and free thought is the only the only real freedom that we have i've said that 
a few times on this podcast, cast, right? The thoughts in our heads and how we convey them into the world, either by speaking them or writing them. That's the only thing that's truly free, which is why the First Amendment is about freedom of speech, right? Even with Twitter, they limit how many characters you can, now they've doubled it, right? It's 280 versus I don't know. 40 or whatever it started at. But point being, they still only let you speak in little bitty clips, right? So you can't ever, it's like that thing was designed for cable news, right? The cable news platform, the cable news business model. Hit and run get, journalism is what I'm going to call it. It's exactly, just, dude. Yeah. You get three minutes to make a point. And the whole time the other side is trying to make their point and all you do is kind of scream at each other and nobody ever gets to, you know, anything even a step below the surface level. And then podcasts come along and Joe Rogan shows that there's an appetite out there for three hour discussions. And you and I are having an hour and a half discussions and everybody we talk to uh, that's listening says, give me more. Right. They, I'm going to, I'm a little apologetic to you guys that are thinking that listening to a three hour conversation is something I, I don't know. I've never listened to a three hour. Well, you know, what? I'm not I, saying everybody knows last one with Joe Rogan. You told me to listen to that one. I think it was damn near two and a half hours. It was a long, it was a long one. Oh, I think that, yeah. It was a good um, one, though. Yeah, I'm glad you. Oh, thank to you it. guys for so listening. My, I'm not saying everybody's into that, right? I'm just right, saying right. there's a there's a market for it. Right. Either way, even if you're not down for a three hour podcast, you know, if you want to have a hard conversation, it's going to take more than a three minute talking head clip. That, on that is a great box, point, absolutely. Right, yeah. and and so Twitter was like designed to just perpetuate that model in you know text uh, social media form, right? You you mm-hmm. you're not you can't like really develop a thought so all you end up with is uh you know like platitudes and and sloganeering right and you know kind of emotionally driven blather because it takes too many characters to put anything thoughtful and factual Dude, out. that totally just drives the mob mentality just exactly latching right. onto that slogan with no real substance behind it uh yeah it's a great point hmm um what about what about what else do i have on my notes here and the the brotherhood one interesting thing and this is on the heels of what aoc said um i think like 10 days ago about we should have a list of all of these trump psychophants which i didn't even know what a psychophant was i had to look up actually i'm surprised that the boobs from uh, new york knew or that i didn't so good for her I'm going to, that's the only nice thing I'll ever say about AOC probably. Uh, But yeah, so it basically means blindly unapologetic following. um, Yeah. It's like a kiss ass, right? It's a brown nose. Yeah. It's, it's, by the way, I think it's sycophant, but yeah. Sycophant. Okay. Uh, So anyway, she's talking about this list of us sycophants and that we should all be held accountable when it's the reckoning comes essentially. Um, it was pretty obtuse, but you, you, anyone that saw it that wasn't kind of in the group think would say, okay, that reminds me of, I don't know, Jews wearing a star on their clothes as put on, you know, dictated by the Nazis. Or uh, in this book, when when he is going through the Brotherhood, the book that he that he has acquired, Winston's acquired the book of the Brotherhood, and he's you know, reading it, and... Uh, he said, "There's no list of there's no list of names of the Brotherhood, right?" And and I think that the conservatives are kind of like if you had to compare, uh, we're the Brotherhood, and the left is the party. It's pretty cut and dry. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, shouldn't obviously have a list of names for, for anyone that disagrees with you. Like I, I, we're not out there saying we need a list of all of the people who unapologetically, um, voted for Biden or the big tech people that censored us and canceled our free speech. No, I mean, we have our disagreements. We go on with our lives. Yeah, well, it's scary to think that she that, that, that oh, we need to have a list of these people that we can persecute them in the future. That's right. Well, they, because they need to silence them, right? I, to your point, what the what what centrist classical liberals and, and American conservatives uh, all have in common is that when they hear somebody spouting nonsense, their natural inclination is to argue with them, right? And to, and to try to share, to fight as uh, Rogan has said it bad ideas with better ideas, right? Something to that effect. Problem with the left is their ideas suck and they know it and we've talked about this. So try having an argument with a leftist and presenting them with facts. All you're gonna get called is a racist, bigot, homophobe, um, un unempathetic, someone who's lacking any sort of uh, you know, emotional connection to the oppressed because how dare you cite facts, right? Mm -hmm. They're not interested in a dialogue about it. Because the dialogue would have, dude. That again, it goes right to the idea of the notion that that thought equals freedom, right? These well, people, ben these people can't get a debate anymore. Exactly. These people are slaves to an ideology, and anything that challenges that ideology is challenging their very identity, right? Because they've become all they are is the ideology, right? So if you dare hit them with something that makes them stop and think and question the nature of the reality they constructed, it's a uh, it's I mean, think about how destructive that is, right? Like, I'm sure you've had moments in your life, I, I know I have, but I can't think of one off hand necessarily, where something I thought for a really, really long time, suddenly be it, I became aware that I was wrong about it for whatever reason. I'll I give you one. Uh, yeah, please. I no longer care about gay marriage. Like I used to, I was grew up Southern Baptist. Um, and I thought for the longest time that that was a sin. Uh, because of, you know, my own family circumstances, my extended family, I have learned and have come to believe that I'm not here to judge. I believe that's between you and God. And I'm not saying that it's even wrong. I don't, because there's certainly gay people that are way better people than me, man, uh, that are nicer, that contribute more to society, um, just probably better people. And I'm not going to judge them. So that, that's just one um, where in, in the, the totally, cool thing about it and i talked about this i think on another podcast was that the church i grew up in now allows openly gay couples so they've come you know the church basically reflects my own thought um i think i got there got there before they did actually i know i did but they've come along to the uh to the same realization yeah i mean i think that's a good example right and again the kind of the point being <clears throat> as an it's funny because you know you'd think the term conservative means kind of close-minded right stuck in or or beholden to old, old ways of thinking and in some ways that it, it does right but to me the um, the modern american conservative is somebody who believes in the principles of the founding of this country the first and foremost of which was the idea of freedom of speech right mm -hmm. so an american conservative is not someone who says you're not allowed to say that because it disagrees with my priors Somebody who says, I'm absolutely willing to hear you out and I'm, I might argue with you and we may agree to disagree, but that's the whole point, right? The left is the opposite of that. 
They don't want to have to contend with their ideas because their ideas are more beliefs. And I know, but Chisholm, they say they're the party of science. Yeah, well, well, Orwell says otherwise. There's a whole bunch of quotes in here about how science itself has to be abandoned in the name of socialism because science leads to reasoning and objective thought. And again, if you're being logical and applying reason and being objective in your thought processes, then you're a free thinker and you might decide that, um, you know, transitioning a 12-year-old is a bad idea or you know, we have a race problem in this country, but the country itself is not inherently racist, right? Like you, that's the kind of things that come out of scientific reason and testing of hypotheses, right? That's mm -hmm. not what they want though. They want compliance in, in, you know, every sense. Dude, do you know in the book, in, in Newspeak, uh, there's not a word for science. It's been intentionally eliminated right. from right. the language. Right, yeah, it eliminated the word from the language, exactly. Science is gone. <laughs> Exactly, man. Uh, yeah. So I've got, you know, you, you got us to the book. And I, to me, again, some of the, the best parts of uh, the book 1984 are the parts where he's conveying uh, the, the Brotherhood's book, the, uh, the party, the enemy of the party. Um, I, I've just got a bunch of sort of thoughts and quotes from all that. But uh, there's, a, there's a passage in there where um, he's talking about those three classes and the need to keep them separated, right? Right. The, the, uh, the inner party very rarely ever in, interacts with the outer party and the outer party certainly never gets to go to uh, the places of the inner party, right? Because they're not allowed to see the fact that the inner party gets fancy coffee and fancy chocolates and fancy clothes and fancy cigarettes, right? And has slaves. <laughs> and has slaves, right. Uh, the, neither of them are supposed to engage with the proles because the proles are the dirty unwashed ma masses they consider them basically subhuman but the real problem is they're free and they that would potentially lead party members to question why they're slaves to the system right mm -hmm. but in so in that idea right I, I, I just i just had the thought and it's related to what we were just talking about the idea that different groups within our society can segregate themselves and then not be forced to acknowledge each other's existence or more importantly, their realities, right? So you've got, you know, we talked about how across the country, you can break, you can break the politics down by rural versus urban, mm. by, and, by and large, right? I mean, there aren't a whole lot of woke progressive liberals in, 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 in rural places. There are a good number of more conservative or libertarian or classically liberal type people in urban places, but, but not enough to out, outweigh, right? So we, we divide ourselves up by city versus rural. We divide ourselves up on the internet based on what Facebook group we're part of or who we follow on Twitter, right? Even, even like, you know how like Twitter groups have names, like there's such a thing as the quote, as quote black Twitter. And it's, you know, the part of Twitter where black folks hang out and talk about things important to the black community. And there's like NBA Twitter and MLB Twitter and NFL Twitter and, you know, I guess conservative Twitter and right. So there's these echo chambers. You're never forced to see how others live and to hear their point of view, which means that you're never forced to reconcile the idea that you may have more in common than you thought. 
right? Like, and in, in fact, I know now what he, what he was getting at. He's talking about how the three major superpowers, Oceania, East Asia, and Eurasia, never the twain shall meet, right? Like they're not allowed to go visit these places ever. Mm. And those people are never allowed to come visit them. There's, there is no international travel. <laughs> Again, one of the tenants of the Green New Deal. Um, yeah, I'm pretty worried about my Cape Buffalo hunt that's supposed to go down in February. I was listening to the news today and they were saying that Biden's like thinking about as soon as he takes office, like a six week <laughs> lockdown. So I'm going to be freaking pissed. I'm going to be a pissed off human. Oh, I don't, I'm going to have to have a lot of sex to like cope with that, I think. Sorry, sorry, Aaron, <laughs> but uh, I, something's going to have to take the place of that. This will be the second time it's canceled. If Biden really does that, oh, I'm going to lose my shit. Okay. Anyway. You're uh, you sound very repressed, man. I'm not, dude. I just had <laughs> our anniversary was this weekend. I so much sex. Well, happy I anniversary. Know, I mean, it's been wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling. I have a feeling your neighbor is going to have an opinion about this this repeated theme in this conversation. Oh no, no, he likes. He's kind of in the same uh, okay. vein there as far as the yeah, and I think that's why he got married too. He's got three kids also, so they've at least done it three times. By the way, Cable's neighbor, my dog is not in the room. So, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, if you're done with that thought, I, I as we are yeah, jumping around here, what did you think about the chemical dependency that a lot of these party members had on this victory gin? Which, because they, they couldn't get a pint at the pub, you know, that was a proletariat thing. That's for the commoners, the scum of society. Um, like you could like the, the employees of the party like drank gin at work and it seemed like certainly Winston had a chemical dependency on it and I, it, it seems very intentional by the party to use that to dull their senses and try to get them you know prevent them from having uh, their own thoughts and the interesting thing was when Winston fell in love with Julia he said he really no longer needed the gin is that human emotion that relationship replaced that chemical dependency that he had on the government uh, issued victory gin yeah well i mean the purpose of it was to give them some sort of release numbing no i i, I doubt a lot of folks have had like profound breakthroughs drunk on gin right right <laughs> maybe, maybe just a little nip and it kind of lubes the brain up but certainly if you're just a you know, uh, a miserable like psychedelics. Well, absolutely not yeah. at all. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a sedative that, that puts you, it makes it hard to speak, let alone think um, where, yeah. you know, yeah. Psychedelics kind of light your brain on fire. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it was a, it was a tool, another one of the many tools that the party used for, controlling the populace is just give them this one outlet, this one thing that'll numb them to their misery. Um, but also, you know, alcohol is addictive substance and it creates a, uh, you know, it creates a, a behavioral loop where, you know, you, you wake up feeling crappy because you drank too much. So you drink, feel a little bit better then you black out and then you wake up feeling crappy again. So you drink again, right. It just mm -hmm. keeps on like that. So, and, and yeah, once he found, meaning and something to live for he didn't need the booze anymore because he had something else that was yeah. that outlet right yeah yeah well and it, i just thought it was so telling when essentially they have a mess hall you know with the at work at the 
uh, Ministry of Defense or you know where he where Winston worked, and like available with your lunch. Here's some gin. So it was like a constant theme, and and he said how horrible it tasted, uh, but they were all you know everyone drank it nonstop. Right. Yeah, because as bad as it was, it was all they had. <laughs> Slightly better than their misery. Their misery, right? Yeah. It's just these people that it makes me think of society today. These people don't even realize how miserable they are. Right. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's something to the fact that they're not, maybe they're not miserable. I don't know, but I they seem feel, to be. I you mean, you mean like, you mean day modern day, life. modern day woke leftists is what you mean, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. And misery loves company. So that's know, right. Their whole, all they're trying to appeal to is oppression. Well, oppression is misery. So their whole appeal is based on misery. Right now, they would claim that they're being hopeful and optimistic about the future. Yet, the only way to get to that future is for everybody to think like they do. So you got to start from this place of agreeing on misery. Right? It, it's just yeah. a, it's a fallacy, dude. Like on its face. I don't. God did not want us to be spend our life being miserable. He wants us to be right. Happy. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the whole point of the Judeo-Christian Bible is to give people hope. Right. And to give us an idea and understanding that there's a higher purpose and a higher power and, you know, whatever strife you may deal with in your life, if you live a certain way and hold certain principles, you'll have something better when this, you know, plane of existence ends. But again, there's a hundred percent overlap between almost there's nearly a hundred percent overlap between woke leftism and, you know, secular atheism. And there's not to me, it's no secret as to why, right? Yeah. yeah. You've got miserable people with no meaning who get to just make up truth and fact to suit their narrative because there's nothing, they're not beholden to anything, any sort of higher power, right? And then, and then they don't have that ability to see past some of the reality is, dude, we all are going to face very difficult circumstances in life. We're going to face misery in life. We're going to be challenged. We're going to be broken. We're going to be hurt. Those that we love are going to be broken. We're going to be hurt, right? And what Judeo-Christianity does is come along and say, there's something better, you know, at the end of this suffering. And what, what secular atheism says is there's not. Mm-hmm. God, what a hard, Where does that leave you, right? I mean, it leaves you existence, miserable. And with the idea that, that, you know, Karl Marx's core fundamental root of his belief system was there's no such thing as fact or truth. There's only what we feel. And if we feel it, then it's true. Right. I mean, that there's that's, again, why he advocated the you know abandonment of religion in the first place, because religion indicates, generally speaking, there are some things that are, quote, true. Right. Right. And there are some things that you shouldn't uh, circumvent or that you, you know, some, some basic rules of humanity that you can't break. <clears throat> He's saying there's not. And, you know, part of that is because there's no belief in the first place. The other part of that is, is that once you abandon the idea of anything being true, then you can get away with the kind of crap the party gets away with in this book. Or what, or was the guy's name that uh, rewrote Christopher Columbus's history? Yeah. Howard Zinn. Yeah. Yeah. That dude. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He had there, he had no higher power 
nothing that held him to truth. He hated America, thought it was a, you know, just a, a nation of oppression. Um, didn't believe that there was anything in his spiritual future that would cause him to face a reckoning. So he just made up a bunch of shit to undermine the country because nobody also, was ever going to hold him accountable. Coming soon, the uh, hashtag I love Jesus, but I cuss a little t-shirts. So y'all be uh, ready for those too. <laughs> I, gotta, I, I mean, I've been talking to my wife. I have said the F word more after, like since this election has happened uh, th than I think I ever have in my life. And it's sad. I, I got to work on it, man. I've got three kids. I don't ever say it around them. Yeah, I don't know. I'm struggling with that. Yeah, you know, I do. So <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. But and I've told you that's why it, initially why I couldn't listen to Joe Rogan because he says the F word just so casually in his everyday vernacular. Uh, well, and and I've gotten to the point where I'm like, just fuck it. F it. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to be, I, I, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to send that message. Uh, and my neighbor's like, well, just stop. He's like, you could stop. And I'm like, yeah, you, uh, you know, baby steps. So. I'm going to, I'm going to try to work like next time we're in deer camp together. You're going to have to, uh, you have to help me out. Well, unfortunately, as you recall, that I'm was asking something... the wrong person, right? <laughs> I started working on it several years ago and then got into Rogan. Um, it, it's hard, not, it, it makes it real hard to abandon that when some of your regular influences use it so prolifically. Yeah. Yeah, man. I don't know. I, Prayer is one thing, obviously, that uh, probably the main thing that can help. But I don't know, maybe some other incentive, uh, something, maybe something really stupid. I don't know. But just got to be a better example in everyday life and certainly for, you know, as a father. Um, and like I told you, my dad always said, that's a sign of immaturity. Well, it's funny because there's at least some evidence out there in psychology that it's actually a sign of intelligence. Um, although I have a feeling that might be somebody, <laughs> somebody yeah. like the dude that wrote the book on Columbus. It's full of right. cockadookie. <laughs> right. I will say it was prolific. Uh, foul language generally was quite prolific in law school. Um, yeah. Most of those folks were, most of them were generally above average intelligence. So I, but, I've got some, I've got some more quotes here. I know we've gone a couple hours now and it's probably a good time to start working our way toward an end but um again so, so these are the thoughts that come from the portion of the book where winston is is reading the book put out by the quote brotherhood which are the enemies of the party right so mm -hmm. th these are basically the critiques of the socialist quote utopia this that is the true. party right right so it's funny right exactly because th this is where all the truth comes from mm -hmm. um so, so in talking about the those three classes and how the middle's trying to take the 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 top and the top's trying to fend them off and the the very bottom doesn't even know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. It said, therefore, from the point of view of the new groups who were on the point of seizing power, human equality was no longer an ideal to be striven for, striving after, but a danger to be averted. So he's talking about like what equality would actually mean. I think right before that, he's got a quote where he uh, he basically says like, um, when when we reach the point as a society where 
uh, where we have everything, you know, he, he lists off things that are just givens in modern society, a, a house, uh, a refrigerator, uh, maybe a car, right? That when, when that becomes sort of the standard norm, that's when we reach something truly like equality. But then what you end up with is sort of the accumulation of stuff, the accumulation of wealth, um, the potential that uh, another group takes power. And so the, the party in the name of equality, like kind of demands this disparity between the proles and the lower party and the upper party in order to maintain their grip on power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, looking, looking at that, thinking about it, I, again, I, I go to like the book, White Fragility, the idea of white privilege, the notion that white people were supposed to be kneeling in the streets and washing the feet of black people for the sins of generations past, like these, 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 these woke, you know, racial revolutionaries are, are basically saying that the concept of whiteness must be eradicated. Where is the equality in that? First of all, what does it even mean? Right? Like, yeah. They make out whiteness to be some sort of boogeyman. It's a, it's a fallacy. It's racist on its face, first of all. Of course it is. Uh, racist, 100%. But, you know, it's definitely not aimed at equality, right? And that's sort of the point I keep trying to make is like, are we, are we striving for equality or are we just striving to turn the, quote, power structure upside down? Um, maybe it's my white privilege speaking, but I don't see, um, generally speaking, uh, minorities, you know, unilaterally 100% being subservient to, to white people in this country. Um, the fact that I know Ibram X. Kendi's name kind of proves the point, right? Like, this is a guy, only in America can, as we've talked about, can AOC and Ilhan Omar get elected to Congress. Deliberately attacking the country on, you know, as a, as a concept, some people did attacking, something. attacking the principles of America. <laughs> they get elected to Congress. This is a place of grotesque oppression. Bullshit. If this was a place of a, of grotesque oppression, like Russia, China, Somalia, Venezuela, where North she Korea, came from. Somalia, right? If this was one of those types of places, you wouldn't be allowed to say that. The thought police would scoop your ass up in the middle of the night, and you'd be you'd be vaporized as Winston dude. Yeah, I mean, there's countries where the thought police absolutely exists. I mean, China, Venezuela. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are murdered by the tens of thousands. I don't know. Maybe China's certainly scaled it back. But I mean, when we go back to like last week's conversation, getting into Mao, I mean, 40 to 80 million deaths on his watch. Just people that didn't uh, adhere to the group thing. You know, with the you're not you're not getting with the program. Well, you're going to disappear. Hey, are you uh, are you finished with that thought? Because I I, I didn't want to yeah. read the last. Uh, do you have anything else? Because I want to read the last part of the the book. Um, but yeah, maybe, just you know. we can just these are mostly just like uh, things that stuck out to me, right? That, sure. that I that I find highly relevant, right? There's there's this quote, the new aristocracy. So so this is basically a little history lesson that the Brotherhood is giving on the progress of socialism uh, across these three superpowers, right? So you're, you're reaching the point where the, uh, the middle class from before has now reached the, the upper class status and the socialism is being like ushered in, right? But he, he says the new, the new aristocracy was made up for the most part of bureaucrats, 
see DC, generally, all of it, uh, the deep state in particular. Scientists, climate change, um, you know, uh, COVID, uh, COVID fighting, right? Mm -hmm. Technicians, trade union organizers, California Teachers Association, public publicity experts, sociologists, they're the ones telling us, you know, how the roots of our country are, are, are evil uh, to the core. Teachers, woke, teachers specifically listed, journalists and professional politicians. That's the new aristocracy that found its way to power and is trying to grip it in this story, right? Yeah, it's a pretty good parallel to the world that I'm living in right now. Yep. Here's something that um, I thought was important to note because I think it maybe speaks a little bit more to uh, neoconservatism than woke leftism. But he talked about how prior prior to that 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 phase, right, as the as society was degrading and capitalism was sort of crumbling, and the socialist revolution was underway said practices which had long been abandoned, in some cases for hundreds of years, imprisonment without trial, Guantanamo Bay. Uh, the use of war prisoners as slaves, public executions, torture to extract confessions, uh, waterboarding, etc. And then the use of hostages, blah, blah, blah. Not only became common again, but were tolerated and even defended by people who considered themselves enlightened and progressive. So the interesting thing there is um, Are we against waterboarding? Uh, waterboarding, if the confession is actually true. <laughs> just, I'm just you mentioned waterboarding. I'm like, uh, I'm not so sure. I'm really against that. If there's people out there trying to commit, uh, you know, mass murders, so that's my thought on. Yeah, that, I, I, I mean, I, I get your point. I could go. We could have a probably. I a mean, waterboarding has been this, uh, this, you know hot button thing over it probably 10 years ago but everyone heard about it it was always being talked about and i'm just like oh, i don't unless it's uh unless the person's innocent then i don't really see the problem with it so i don't know that's my take <laughs> yeah i torture has been know, used to extract confessions for since you know the beginning of time so so there's the, so 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 this it's an idealist uh, perspective, I'd say that I hold, but I think to the to the point here, right? The point that that's exactly what this is getting at, right? One of the things that I've touched on, and I had a good quote on it, and I, I'm not going to bother trying to track it back down, but is the idea that so much of of the of the things the party got away with were all done in the name of protecting, like they they have these fake wars just to keep people afraid and to give them a reason to give all the power over to the party, right? I mean, he almost says it exactly like that, right? That these, yeah. that these fake wars, I found the quote I was referencing earlier where he, where he was like, you know, fear will allow the parole, you know, will allow the public to accept any intrusion into their privacy. He makes that point, right? Telescreen. Um, right, telescreen in our context, like I said earlier, the, um, the, the Patriot Act, right? Right. <clears throat> They told us that we were fighting this war on terror. And, then, and that if we didn't, we would suffer another 9-11 attack. And we all just take that to be true. They did these, they, you know, they, they took these uh, techniques that some would certainly call torture. Uh, they relabeled them as enhanced interrogation, which itself is newspeak. 
right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and they promised it was promised us it was for the greater good, and they even gave us examples of instances to your point where they did get uh, allegedly information that was actionable that quote prevented a uh, another terror attack. First of all, I don't know why I'm supposed to believe any of that shit any more than I believe anything coming from the left today. Mm-hmm. They had an agenda, right? They did. Now, yeah. to your point, if it's true. And unequivocally, they managed to block a terrorist act that saved thousands and thousands of lives. Then, I, you know, on its face, it's hard to disagree with your point. The ends justified the means. But I still do believe that you're either a country with bedrock principles or you're not. Right? If we're a country of freedom, um, that that you know that that i guess there's a reason they couldn't call it torture right because america does not stand for torture so they had to come up with a fancy euphemism for it does that make sense i think the uh like the general populace's perspective would be anti-torture but i'm one that looks at the bigger picture and the facts are like you said if it's going to prevent a terror attack Eh, I'm not really. Hey, you know what? I just don't want to know about it. How about that? You do what you need to do. I don't care. Okay, but I'm, what I'm saying is, man, if you turn a blind eye to that, you're not. You're you're on the first step towards 1984, right? Because you're willing to sacrifice certain bedrock principles of. Okay, then tell me, man. Torture. Tell me we're torturing these people, and then I'm probably still gonna be like, okay, I don't care. Fine. If it's if it's saving <laughs> if it's saving me and my family or you and your family over. Uh, some suspected terrorist that wants to, uh, who thinks Americans all are going, you know, should be sent to hell or are going to hell for being American. I don't, yeah, I don't really care. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's, uh, maybe that seems incredulous to you. I don't know, but I'm not going to go that far. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging. I think it's, I think it's a sense of patriotism. Like I, you know, me, (sighs) Hey, you know what? I will choose my countrymen over them every day of the week. Okay, but you have to see how parallel that is to this whole concept in this book, right? Using well, our fear. Hold on. Well, no, no. U- using our fear of a terrorist attack. Using our fears of a terrorist attack to justify the torture of other human individuals and then being able to say, yeah, but that's them and we're us and we're protecting us, F them. Right? I mean, dude, that... That would come straight out of this book. Right? Or you're I'm looking, not sitting here yeah. saying that to tell you that you're terribly wrong. It's just another example and one of the few we could point to where he's not where you know where it relates more to quote unquote our side of things. Right. Sure. But if you don't have that sense of patriotism and, and you're not willing to say, yeah, go ahead, then it's kind of like, okay, now we're back to this one world idea. Like, I don't believe that. I believe America is the best country in the world. And I believe people have given their lives for that. And I'd like to see it stay that way. I'll be damned if, you know, we, we, we're going to just stand on the sidelines and not do what's necessary to get a, you know, get information from a terrorist. I think we should put a pin in this because it might make for a really cool standalone conversation. But, but I would say, or kind of ask, like, how well do you understand uh, our history, say specifically with Osama bin Laden, 
our history in the Iranian revolution of the 70s um, and sort of how we destabilize that whole part of the world. Um, I'm, I'm not somebody who's sitting here and saying that America, quote, got what it's deserved with 9-11, right? But I think no, it's no, hard. No. I think people, it's, it's not 9-11. It's some people did something. Okay, right. According to <laughs> right. Omar. I think Omar, yeah. But, but, but my point is, would it have happened but for our meddling in the Middle East going back many, many decades? Um, I mean, there's at least one theory, that sort of butterfly effect that would say, yeah, if we'd never meddled over there, all the course of history would have been changed. So, you know, very likely that 9-11 wouldn't have happened. Now, maybe something else would have happened, right? Um, but, you know, the reality is we funded Osama bin Laden um, during basically, if I'm not mistaken, uh, like Charlie Wilson's War, that movie about mm -hmm. that Texas politician who found who funded the CIA operation to fight back the Russians in Afghanistan. Yeah. Like we, we funded Osama bin Laden and made him this ultra wealthy, you know, Al Qaeda superhero that he became. And then the chickens kind of came home to roost. Right. Um, I guess what I'm saying is we go over there and you know, meddle in the affairs of other countries. Um, some individuals find one reason or another to become radical radicalized against us. They come to hurt us. They claim as retribution for our acts, um, which then justifies us returning the favor yet again in the form of uh, enhanced interrogation, right? And the and then the snuffing out of people who um, were gonna. <laughs> in fact, dude. <laughs> There's the concept in this book of thought crime. Yeah. Right. And the thought police is like he explains, there's no, there's no actual laws in Oceana. Right. There's no laws that the thought police are actually enforcing. What they're actually doing is removing you from the equation before you had a chance to do something wrong. Right. Right. Much like, uh, what was that Tom Cruise movie? Um, where they have like the three psychics and he's like, they can predict crimes before they happen and nip them in the bud. The minority report, I think is what it's called. Yeah, I think right? so. Yeah. Like, would you be okay with the idea that you could be arrested for a crime that you haven't actually committed, but you intended to? Of course not. Right. So we took the intelligence we gained during the early days of the war on terror and we went and apprehended individuals who were plotting things but hadn't actually done those things then we held them you know i just read it right but imprisoned them without trial directly from this book at guantanamo for decades or at least a decade right mm -hmm. with no real intention of ever trying them because they hadn't actually done anything illegal yet they weren't even necessarily subject to the jurisdiction of the united states yeah I, it's i'm just, I'm just yeah i'm just saying dude there's something to think about there Sure. And uh, not sitting here advocating to go back and retroactively recreate it all. But I, I know somebody who would agree with everything I just said. Donald J. Trump. Yeah. Right. This is a drum he's been banging since he ran that everything we've done over there, dude. And just the idea we've been at war for 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq. And from what I can tell, there's no end in sight. That is that is 1984. Again, one of the overriding handful of themes in this book is this idea that the government's in play here keep everybody in perpetual war did even the idea of like one day we're sideways with russia and 
um, friendlier with China. And then the very next day, it's like we're we're real adversarial with China, but we're a little bit friendlier with Russia again. I mean, like have you, we've seen that in our lifetime. That's well, exactly- one thing I do love about Trump is that he's brought so much of that energy production here and out of the Middle East. So to you know, yeah. I see a bigger picture of lessening the conflict. If we're not involved over there anymore, clearly, I mean, put two and two equals four in this case and not five. Agreed. Hey, okay, then a hundred percent. And yet yeah. the left here wants to ban fracking and continue to rely on foreigners for their energy. Yeah. This is just asinine. Um, I'm going to read the, the last part of this book. Hold on. Let me, uh, let me throw one thing at you and then we can, because sure. that's a better place to end then. Um, in the past, no government had the power to keep its citizens under constant surveillance. The invention of print, however, made it easier to manipulate public opinion and the film and radio care and, and film and radio carried the process even further with the development of television and the technical advance which made it possible to receive and trans transmit simultaneously on the same instrument, private life came to an end. Um, Man, Orwell, dude. I mean, like he just like nailed it traveler. there, right? That was <laughs> this book was written in 1949, and he yeah. spelled out exactly how those technologies led us to this point. And what I wrote down was, where does that leave the internet in that process? To me, it seems pretty clear that everything he just outlined, basically the internet is more like the telescreen, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the this, this thing that's always listening and showing us propaganda, right? But the, the interesting thing is where television is scripted and it's uh, all of it, right? And, and it's all got an agenda and you've got to have the ability to plug into a satellite to get your message out, right? We know that the, 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 the television media is a straight propaganda tool for whatever side they're advocating. The internet has the ability to be that, but it's also like the wild west of true freedom where you can find something else out, right? So like I've described it as this sort of double-edged sword. It's like, it seems to me, we are in some ways still marching towards this dystopia, yet the right. very same tool that might slam the door shut is the very same tool that could kick the door open and prevent it, right? Mm -hmm. probably not a great uh, a metaphor no. there but I, I get what you're saying absolutely yeah well so to summarize winston's story here to bring it to a full circle o'brien the guy that was torturing him the from the inner party uh, um he said we will make you love big brother and winston's like no i will always hate big brother and he's like no you will love him and, you know, through months of torture, they, you know, Winston doesn't know how long it's been because he has no concept of time. He's in this building with no windows, doesn't know if it's day or night. Um, through all these phases, these different methods of, of torture, they don't, they, they actually release him. And he, he becomes just basically his existence. He, he gets paid more than he used to. He has a pretty good existence. He just sits at this, uh, this cafe all day and drinks gin and goes into work like once or twice a week. But the book ends as, so this dude who was against the party, he hates the party. He wants change. They break him, man. It says, and this is Winston. Uh, he gazed up at the enormous face, 40 years it had taken him to learn what kind of a smile was hidden beneath. Oh, cruel, needless misunderstanding. Oh, stubborn self 
wailed exile from the loving breast. Two gin-soaked tears trickled down the sides of his nose. But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. So, dude, they, they beat him. They broke yeah. him. Right. And they telegraph that and, and, and foreshadow that all throughout the book, right? They say that mm-hmm. you know, whenever the thought police come for you, you always confess, right? And you'll confess to... Things you didn't even do. Everything they demand that you confess yeah. to. Like, basically, right. With enough torture and mind control, you will you will succumb, right? And yeah. again, I mean, I fear the reality of that, but at the same time, there's the metaphorical implication, right? Of um, if you beat people down by calling them racist, right? And silence them, oppress them into silence with, uh, you know, the, the, the fear of being labeled and, and outcast, right? You can eventually get people to start saying things that, they didn't believe uh, before and maybe even eventually get them to believe it. Right. I've said this before, but I think the vast majority of these woke people believe what they're saying. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's very many of them who are the puppet masters pulling the strings. I think a lot of them buy it for one reason or another. Um, Part of it's indoctrination which the book covers extensively. Part of it is fear, uh, basically conditioning, right? It's, 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 if you don't buy it and don't live it and, and, you know, I mean, you can see I think it. it makes them feel good to belong to something, even if it's a fallacy. Right. And, and more importantly, it's something that they believe they have the moral high ground on, right? There's that quote I mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago, just briefly, but he says early in the book, you know, about basically leftist socialists, right? That, uh, uh, what is it? They repudiate morality while laying claim to it. I love that line. Mm-hmm. That's what the left does all the time, right? They, yeah. they look at, guy, at Christians, you know, uh, or any, any, you know, people of faith as you know backwards on some sort of moral high horse and yet then they claim to be the party of morality you know they're we while accept they st- you we we love you we have no limitations on the amount of compassion we have for you oh what, you disagree with us f you right 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 you don't you don't you don't adhere to the group think right anything's permitted except to expect standards of people. Yeah. Right. The simple expectation that people maintain a certain standard is the only thought crime, you know, the, the left uh, cares about. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, y'all read the book, hmm. uh, dude. I, so I, I do want to say thanks to you too, because like, like I've said, I have essentially for like, uh, I don't know, most of my adult life, basically read hunting magazines and books about hunting been very few times i read the hunger games that was probably the last series i read that's been i don't know maybe 10 years uh and other than that it's just been hunting books about africa and and stuff about hunting and fishing so uh you gave me this this homework project to read 1984 i enjoyed it and and i I gotta say i look forward to uh to our next book review next time we 
Uh, oh, and you and I read uh, most of uh, Abigail Schreier's book. Um, uh, what was it called? Uh, do, 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 um, which is what was the name of that? Irreversible damage. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for that. I've read two books in like the last month. Oh, I think awesome. I'm a new person. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, I'm so glad you mentioned Aaron in a moment where I was clear-headed. In our last conversation, you were talking about uh, teaching Henry because he was asking, right? He wanted yep. to understand the election. He wanted to understand the two sides. And so you were teaching it as you saw fit. And y'all were talking about it. And you indicated she was at least a little frustrated, maybe... Um, that yeah, she was. wasn't maybe a more balanced discussion i guess and you said like you started to feel the need to explain it and then you were like but i'm not going to apologize i don't feel i don't feel like i need to apologize for that and you you talked and at the end of it i was like yeah you don't need to apologize i do want to say something i realized listening back and i think i thought it right after i said it i certainly didn't mean <clears throat> let me see how i want to say this i think it's crucially important and we have touched on this that parents find a way to get on the same page when it comes to how to raise children. Like, I really, I really believe that. So when I said, like, you shouldn't apologize, I wasn't in any way trying to indicate that you and your wife having a disagreement about this and that just let, being left to sort of fester and you taking like a real hard line uh, stance about it. That, that, that's yeah. not what I was getting at. What, when, I, when I agreed with the idea that you don't need to apologize, I meant like to the world, right? certainly to the woke leftists like <laughs> that was what where my head was at but in listening back it was so in the context of this conversation with your wife i did want to clarify yeah. like no i didn't y'all, apologize y'all need to work gonna. through we all we all this isn't this isn't me counseling or anything right we all need to work through these things with our with our yeah. spouse right and at the same time it does you know what needs of, to happen it was a conversation about it that was her whole point was i want to you know right. talk about it which i think we did and then i and i was about in that conversation getting ready to apologize getting ready to like say yeah okay you're then i was like no uh i i don't think you're right in this instance but the point yes we did have the conversation it wasn't just right. me being like i'm right. the dad it's my say it's, it's my way or the highway uh that that's not what transpired she might she might think that maybe it was a little bit but i feel like there was some dialogue there and uh yeah it sounds like the there day, was yeah. it sounds like there was but and i would say like while I think it's crucially important that that conversation be had and to the extent possible, parents always get on the same page. It's not always possible, right? Yeah. It's not always possible. And there will be times it's happened throughout Ashley and I's, you know, life together with children where she has it in her mind, something needs to go one way. And I have it adamantly in mind, my mind that it needs to go another way. And there's times where uh, we don't necessarily get on the same page with it. Right. Um, you got to deal with those situations on a case by case basis. And, you know, the way everybody sort of sees fit for their own relationships. Um, mm -hmm. I guess my point is just like, always strive to reconcile those things and to be on the same page. Um, I would always, when it comes to conflict with your spouse, always err on the side of apologizing. But at the same time, I don't think you were wrong. It sounds like at the end of the day, maybe she didn't think you were totally wrong either as much as she would have liked to have discussed it beforehand. And I think that's a valid point. Um, but even if you had, it may not have changed the outcome. Um, I don't really yeah, know. No, it was just the way that it all went down. Like, here's yeah. a bunch of yard signs. Dad, why are there all these Trump and Biden? I mean, the kid can read now. Right. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, there's all these. What do all, these, what one, do all was, these mean? And I'm like, well, son, we haven't, you know, explained the election process, and right. there's this. Well, Dad, who, who are you voting for, and why? Like, okay, and then the question is just, you know, Aaron's. Yeah, off it's not like and, it's not like you were going to say, hey, son, let's put a pin on this. Let me consult with your mother. Then, we'll right, talk. right. You were having a you were having a conversation with your son, right? Yeah. And, and and that's why you know it does sound like y'all worked through it. All I'm trying to say is I wasn't. He trying still to loves me, so anybody. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't trying to indicate to anybody that you should take like a completely defiant unapologetic stance when your wife or husband takes some issue with something you said or did with the kids. Right. Um, but there are times where you may just see things differently. And and in fact, there will be times because you're dad and she's mom. Right. And Mm -hmm. so yeah, you may end up in the same place where it's like, well, I'm not going to apologize for that. I believe sincerely in the approach that I took. And she may say, well, I disagree with it. And uh, so be it. Don't be an obstinate ass about it. This is not, I'm not speaking this to you, right? I'm just sort of like trying to finish out. Oh, I've definitely been an abstinent ass. (laughs) Obstinate. Right. I'm never abstinent. abstinent. (laughs) (laughs) I've been an obstinate ass plenty of times in my relationship with my wife. And usually it ends up with me groveling and apologizing because i knew no. i was an ass so. right i mean it's like you know we they don't ever apologize as much oh that's not just that's not just my wife <laughs> i just thought right, that love was you mom. love you girls uh all right we gotta we <laughs> yeah. gotta get we gotta wrap this up y'all read it 1984 hope you enjoyed the review uh i don't know what we're gonna do next week um we've got a bunch of topics remember you guys can email us uh your thoughts Lone Star Door Show at gmail.com. Chisholm. Chisholm L. Cook at yahoo.com. That's going to do it for episode 13 of Justified Pursuit for my buddy Chisholm Cook. I'm Cable Smith. And we will see you guys next time. Think freely. My way. Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew when I fit off. More than I could chew But through it all